You're listening to Find the Good News, Episode 27, The Sugar Bowl, featuring Brooke Hanneman. This episode of Find the Good News is sponsored by Parker Brand Creative Services, a branding agency that thinks sideways, pushes forward, and gets your brand up. Check out our work at parkerbrandup.com. Would you like to help make sure I'm asking my guests the really good questions? Just visit findthegood.news and click the questions tab. I'll see if I can get your question dropped in the fishbowl. Each episode, my guests will dive deep, select three random questions, and if yours is selected, I'll ask it on the show. That's findthegood.news. Brooke Hanneman, the director of Banners at McNeese State University, agreed to visit with me on Find the Good News. Like other guests, I knew very little about her before our conversation. Also like other guests, it was an absolute pleasure to get to know her. There's something thoughtful and poetic in the way Brooke speaks. She often closed her eyes when she would recount stories of her youth, and her descriptions of her childhood haunts were sweet, dripping with heavenly honey. I could feel the light on my own skin in her words, as Brooke took me back to the places and people that shaped her, those forever experiences enshrined in her mind, the catalysts for all her talents, passions, and dreams. Theater, art, dance, it's all there in her timeline. She shared joy and loss, life and love, death and birth. As her name implies, we meandered gently downstream from one lovely experience to the next, never regretting a single ripple or eddy as we babbled along around sharp rocks and soft sandy banks. Brooke has a knack for sharing the experiences that shaped her, and this gift gives more merit to her insights. Her story of the Sugar Bowl, the name of this episode, is revealed in her retelling of a great blessing. You see, Brooke was baptized on the Isle of Ireland, the land of shepherds and saints, at the hands of one of the most insightful and good-hearted men to have ever walked the earth. Her delivery of this spiritual experience is not something I'll soon forget, and imprinted upon me the importance of being truly present and always humble as a child of creation. Brooke looks deeply into her own timeline, the whole of her history, and she captures that energy, the full force of that magic, then puts it to work manifesting new and glorious things. I have to believe that some of that mystic, ethereal dust is sprinkled on the offerings of banners at McNeese State University. The good news is that if we look closely at this cultural program, We'll see a bit of Brooke Hanneman's history flowing comfortably into it, fusing and melting directly into our own. Wake up, it's morning, you're dreaming up a story I can hear the way it's going, cause you're laughing in your sleep on the path to your deliverance and a holy wall of light. Old news, bad news, fake news. Sometimes you just want to shut it all down and get no news at all. With Find the Good News, I aim to change that by focusing on good people doing good work. I visit with artists, educators, civic and spiritual leaders, musicians, business owners, students, volunteers, and everyday citizens who are using their creativity, resources, and talents to bring hope and happiness to their corner of the world. In each episode, I dig into the hearts and minds of my extraordinary guests. We have street-level conversations about relatable things going on in their lives, discover the critical life experiences that shape them, 
the perspectives that drive them, and the fundamental beliefs that are anchoring them to a path of goodness. There's a lot of news in the world. My name is Orrin Parker, and I'm going to find the good. I love you just as well. I really would like to get to know them better. Right. I, honestly, it's probably where some of this show was born. Yeah. You know, just yeah. in that desire to get to know people better. But what's great is now um, all these people are just sending me all these names of people I haven't met. I think that's got to be an incredible gift. It's an experience and it is a gift. It's exactly the word I use a gift, a blessing, a grace, because I'm probably some. We were actually talking about that in our morning meeting. I'm probably somebody who. Um, and it comes from old social anxiety where I've maybe not known how to approach people properly um, because I, I don't really do well with chit chat and small talk. Sure. You know, I do better with like deep dive stuff. Uh-huh. And so I always avoid going in because I'm going in for the kill, you know, <laughs> I'm going all the way. And so uh, this show creates, a, I guess, a landing space for that. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I guess I'm hoping other people are getting something out of it, too. Absolutely. Yeah. You're amassing an army of good people and yeah. making people aware of the army of good people that are out there. Yeah. That's the thing that I think for me was another start of this was uh, you can kind of get, I mean, maybe not everybody, but I know my own mind that you can get caught in sort of the negative things that are flying around out there. Yeah. And so reminding yourself that there's not only good people, but good people who have like deep long stories of goodness yeah you know that's what i'm looking for i'm always looking to find out the why yeah you know not just the thing that was done but where did the it come story, from where did it start where, yeah yeah and so i didn't know a lot about you uh-huh. you know but i did my little light cyber stalking so Excellent. let's just start off with okay. what you're doing today sure and we'll just backtrack from okay. there okay okay so i know what you do but why don't you tell everybody what you do absolutely um i'm the director of banners at mcneese state university and that is an organization that is 26 years strong and it brings arts and humanities programming to lake charles and we endeavor to bring uh diverse group of uh, films, theater, music, lectures, documentaries. Um, uh, every spring we have a season. We also have a fundraiser, Rouge Blanc. Many uh, people uh, know us yeah. for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the wine and food tasting. But even when you're out there enjoying the wine and food, it's to support Banners. And Banners has a huge outreach. And we go into schools and we bring schools to us. And it's... Um, there's no place in Lake Charles that I would rather work than there. It's I, I literally sometimes when I walk around that campus, I inadvertently find myself saying thank you with every footstep. Thank you. Really? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Wow. So it's been a blessing to it's you. It's huge. It's huge. And it's such an amazing time to be out out there on that campus with Dr. Brickell. It's kind of a renaissance, I think. I think Jody has talked about that too, but... There are so many people that are amassing right now that are, are looking to create a rich community and in such diverse different areas, but it's a wonderful place to be. It's a wonderful staff. It's a wonderful organization. Jody is, uh, he's indefatigable. He's unstoppable. He, uh, I, I'm so impressed with what he and Jessica, who's also incredibly talented, have been able to accomplish. You know, they came in and, and, and pulled off Rouge Blanc, um, 
with no time and I liken it to learning how to fly a jet while in air. Oh, you know? wow. Yeah. We were, <laughs> we were hurtling <laughs> towards it and they just, you know, took on and it was, uh, it, it's a, it's a stellar group of humans to work with. And I think that so much of our, so much of our lives, our waking daily hours are spent at work Monday through Friday. Right. And so for your life, for you to love what you do, your life is immensely blessed. And if you don't love what you do, then there's a good, you know, portion of your life that's um, just depleted. So I'm wildly, wildly lucky. Yeah. You just kind of nailed, you nailed it and really touched on something that is so important to me, you know, is the time you do have here, what are you doing with it? You know, and, and I think it's easy to get caught in a pattern sure. of behavior. And, and I know working for a lot of people is just surviving to take care of somebody, you mm-hmm. know, and that's, that's a reality that some people face. It is. But you said the other part of that is, when you can do something you love that the way that affects your life what a blessing yeah. that really is because when, when you're in that space i mean i don't know that you're you're lining up parts of yourself i think that uh, we're always supposed to do something you yeah. know it's like little tumblers fall in place things mm-hmm. start to unlock mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah so how long have you been at banners i, I had my one year anniversary wow. last month one year <laughs> one wow year. okay so where so let's let's start take drawing the the line back where do you come from where do i come from yeah um i was uh i was born in new orleans lived north shore most of my time my mother and my father we were very um we were not a moneyed family, but wildly rich, ah. um, because they raised me in nature and to have a reverence for nature and art and theater and literature and people and community. And every chance they could, they put me just in front of wild, wildly creative people. And I got raised in you know the green rooms of theaters and danced from when I was very very small in this little um, uh, converted church with stained glass windows. Oh, so wow. it was a beautiful and. And although we didn't have a lot of money, I remember we grew up on 150 acres. It was um, long, winding country roads with wild roses growing along pecan fields, and the gates were just laden with uh, wisteria and um, streams and ponds and oak trees with Spanish moss and stars like diamonds. It was, uh, and I was allowed to just go. I'm an only child, so I was allowed to just go run and try to find islands or run around with my dogs or just be free. They gave me freedom and they gave me reverence and they showed they're incredible humans. I, I won the lottery and my parents, wow. um, they're polar opposites in philo- philosophy in many ways, but bound by love and um, reverence for things that are really important. I remember my father telling me, if you have a love for nature and if you have a love for theater was the thing that we shared most, um, art no matter how much money you do or don't have, you will always be rich. Wow. You're right. You won the lottery. I did. I mean, there's so much to unpack right there with what you said. I mean, as I'm listening to you, and I wish people could see you talk about it, uh, you're painting a picture, you know, and I'm walking into these, by these fences. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Wow. So when you go back there, is that a real place to you in your mind? Oh, gosh. I mean, I know it was a real place, and yeah. it is a real place, but I mean, can you go there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Really? Yeah. Do you do that a lot? Is that like a place you go? 
You mean mentally or Yeah, mentally. Like, yeah, like Uh, just... Yes, I dream about it. It's, yeah, I mean, it was just magical on so many levels. There was, you know, there was an old uh, water tower I was never allowed to climb, which, of course, I was on top of often. And (laughs) there there was uh, one little magical space. There was a two-room structure, um, a little house. I'm not really sure what it was on the property. But on the edge of it, there had been a barn, but the walls of the barn had fallen. And so the only thing that stood was the tin roof so you could climb out the window of the structure down a ladder into this little um, uh, fort that I created and I found like oriental rugs and antique wood tables and I pulled it down there and had this magical little getaway this place and and you can go there in your mind anytime absolutely that's I love that it's a solace for me for sure that's and I mean you know I know this is about you but at the same time there's so many things that I think of when I'm listening to you talk about that and one of the things I I talk about with my wife and my children a lot and, and even friends is the heart cave and I have a place that I go you know and it's like I can go there anywhere anytime I really need to and it, it changes over time but it's real visceral you know, when I'm there I can smell it yeah. and feel the temperature and hear the sounds outside and it's a lovely place that's all my own, you know. Yeah. And what's neat about it is I, rooms tend to get added on as I've lived, you know, where I can open a door and go in there and there's things in there that maybe are devoted to a person that was in my life, you know. And so I'm listening to you talk about that and I just, I don't know, behind my eyes I kind of feel tears, but like tears of joy You're because there, it's yeah. that, yeah, you, you go, man, that is a, a blessing. It makes me think of... um one particular memory I have with my father. We had lived here in Sulphur on this uh, Cardinal Drive. Now back then there weren't a lot of homes, but I was very little and I asked my mom one time because I had this memory. I said, is this, I'm gonna describe something to you, but I wanna make sure I'm not imagining this. And she was like, wow, you were little, like two or three years old. But I had this memory of being really high up and of my father holding his hands on my legs and i can like really go there and feel that memory and we would walk down the shell road and off into sort of like a an opening and there were honeysuckles everywhere and i can remember him plucking one of those honeysuckles and pulling the little drop out and putting it up his hand coming up and put it in my mouth and like it's so vivid visceral yeah Yeah, and visceral that like i had to believe it was real and when i described it to her because we used to do that all the time when you were little and so now when i'm having a moment with one of my kids or or anything i call them honeysuckle moments Mm -hmm. because it's like okay this being aware that something of value is happening and i think sometimes and again i'm bringing it full circle to what y'all are doing over at banners who knows in that audience of whatever it is you're presenting whether it's a reading or a performance that a person out there might be having a honeysuckle moment right yeah and what a what a gift that is to whoever's in that audience and you know maybe three people it might be 10 but that could be a life changer for them right and that's why i i love art so much and i don't think art is a luxury i I think that it's a necessity and I, i think that it's that the fact that you have no idea who you are touching in what way you as a human being you carry so much internally into a room that no one could ever conceive of you don't know how the how that art is going to land in the audience and then conversely when you're involved in creating the art sometimes the most magnificent things 
out of that art is what happened that the audience doesn't get to see. It makes me remind, it reminds me of a play, it's called Wit by Margaret Edson. And I directed it at a college that I had worked at. And um, the cast was huge, and I had a lot of kids in my class who are just freshmen. They're straight out of high school, fresh out of their parents' you know enclaves into you know their own living. And the play is about uh, a woman who finds out that she has uh, stage four ovarian cancer, and it's written in this beautiful way. It was written actually by um, a, a kindergarten teacher who wrote the play, won a Pulitzer, never wrote another play. Really? But um, it it starts off with this woman, and she direct addresses the audience. She comes in bald headed with a cap on and a gown, and she's holding her IV, and she. She says, you know, I'll never forget the day that I found out I had cancer. And the doctor wheels on. He doesn't even make eye contact with her. And he says, you have cancer. And wow. she said, see, unforgettable. And the whole thing, she goes through this process that so many of us have gone through with loved ones, you know. Um, but at the same time, she is a professor of the Holy Sonnets of John Donne, which is metaphysical poetry, which is a step above more cerebral than Shakespeare. So she's very um, uh, well advanced, and, um, and she's lost the human touch. And the play is really about the human touch. Well, when we started the play, I did what's called table work before we started reading through the script. And we talked about death and dying. We talked about what what at the end of your life matters. At the end of your life, is it is it the degrees that you got? Is it the position that you hold? Is it the money that you have? What, what are the things? And um, we went through the stages of death and dying. And um, gosh, the experience from that... I remember I had a child break down in tears and she said, you know, we don't speak about death in my family and I'm terrified and sometimes at night I cry myself to sleep about it and I'm terrified about this. And there was another one, you know, who came up when I said, what matters at the end? What would you regret? And one girl, she was, a, she was a freshman, she was a child, and she said, you know, I haven't spoken to my father in two years. And she teared up and she said, I'm not even really sure why. We just got mm. in a fight, you know. And, uh, and we went through the process. And, you know, there was one kid, I'll be honest about this, uh, there was this one child that I had cast because he kind of embodied the character and the character was kind of really pompous and cocky and not human touch and just would joke and he had walls and he I was thinking well he's perfect I don't even have to direct him I just put him on stage you know and uh, he would never take anything seriously well about two days into the table work he asked if he could go to the restroom I said sure sure he came back and we were doing a talk and he said I just want to tell something to to the cast and I thought oh no here it comes you know and he said uh, I walked out I, I asked to go to the bathroom he said I didn't have to go to the bathroom he said my father killed himself four months ago and yesterday my little brother who's seven his turtle died and I wanted to call him and tell him that I love him and in that moment it was like here is humanity yeah. where we don't usually see it you know and at the end of the process, um, it, it was just, you know, there was a talk back after the show and someone said to the cast, did, did anything, did this affect you at all? And they were like, one girl said, you know, I was afraid of death my whole life and I'm not afraid anymore. The other girl raised her hand and she said, I hadn't spoken to my father in two years and now I've, he's in the audience right now. Yeah. And, you know, it's just, the audience may not even know what's happening behind the scenes when the painting is painted or when the music is written um, but it, it creates a wake of humanity, and I think that the arts, in whatever uh, form they come to you in, remind us that we are all carrying these internal worlds around within yeah. us. And although we walk around in the world and we try to put on a professional face in the midst of maybe huge personal tragedy in your life, 
um, when we try to act, air quotes, normal, um, we are all carrying desire, passion, rage, need, want, agony. We've all been in our, on our knees and and we learn that and rem- are reminded of that through jazz and blues and literature. And so again, it's just, it's a blessing to be a part of facilitating that in, in any way. Yeah, golly, man. Gee whiz. <laughs> Everything you're saying, I'm just mesmerized and sucked into that because I, I didn't expect you to go into death like that but that's a conversation that i could probably stay in for a long time because you know death's been the great revealer for me so many times that's really well said i have seen my own face i've seen the true face of other people um it's changed me and sometimes i think it hasn't necessarily changed me or it's maybe just stripped things away and shown me you know who I'm I am right and uh, I don't know sometimes I think it's easy to, to just say well death is a beautiful thing and sometimes when I say that I feel like I need to sit there with the person I'm saying it to and unpack it because there's so much more to that you just said so much of what I it really carries me through my life I mean the whole history of not only my family timeline the things I know and I don't know live in me yeah and so everything that's happened to just me and my one little timeline yeah. you know and when you keep branching out backwards just this domino effect of everything that you that you do is an accumulation i mean whether just us sitting here at this table is the fulfillment of an of entire path. history of that's, people yeah that is so to some people i think that might be too heavy to think about on a day-to-day right. basis but if you can take all that gravity and like bring it into the moment of an interaction, it sharpens it that. Yeah, everything. I, I honestly, when I was driving over here, I thought to myself, "Well, there's some things that I I will choose not to talk about. I'm about to talk about that <laughs> because you said, you know, death is the great revealer. I um I had an experience very recently um where uh I went and saw my father on Father's Day, and on Monday I, w- I stayed because my mother is a beautiful reporter. She's an incredible writer. She's done. Th- she was a one of the founders of the Bogalusa Blues and Heritage Festival. She created, you know, civil rights museums and just did all these amazing things. And um, she was she came home from work one day and looked at her notes from a city council meeting and realized they didn't make sense. And so we were taking her to get these neurological tests. So on Monday I went with her. On Thursday, uh, they told her she had aphasia, which is, I liken it to that um, black and white movie, um, Johnny Get Your Gun, where the, yeah. where the prisoner is without arms and legs and he can't speak and he's trying to speak through. He, he, but his mind is clear, but he nobody just, knows There's no that. way for him to communicate. Right? That's what aphasia is. First, it takes away your linguistic, or your writing abilities and then your linguistic, like, linguistic abilities and then your ability to understand um reading and then your ability to understand um, uh, the language. Well, the day they they told her that, my father fell, broke five ribs, collapsed a lung. And the we same ended day. Up, mm-hmm. We ended up in SICU for seven weeks. I was nine months pregnant and uh, I had to make the decision to 
turn off my father's breathing machine. And at that time, over that seven-day period, my mother uh, deteriorated. Somebody robbed my parents' house, stole her car, and uh, and then I had a baby four weeks later after my father died. And then my mother um, also came down with a fast case of dementia. And that all happened about four months ago, five months ago. And, uh, and so it has they were such an influence in my life and so beautiful in my life and I became an orphan very quickly not mm. prepared for it in a way but the whole experience you know it's a little bit crass but either when you look at bad things in your life they can either be excrement mm-hmm. or they can be fertilizer mm. and so you choose you can't change what happens or befalls you but you you do choose how your mind is going to wrap itself around that and whether you let pain and agony best you or whether you take it to kind of sharpen the joys that are in your life and appreciate what's in your life and i think that a lot of i I think that death as the great revealer i mean gosh it, it is all of a sudden all of these things happen and you're walking around going through your day-to-day things and dealing with your business and making the deadlines and doing all this stuff no one has any clue what's going on with you right um but all of a sudden you start looking at things and thinking what is important to me yeah you know your your organization your your job is not going to be at graveside but if your work is meaningful and you know that you're creating a wake of goodness behind you then it does go with you and it just makes you realize the things that are beautiful and the things that i mean it's just the thing like driving down the road and seeing the sun come up and it's streaming through the trees and it's dappling the water and when normally you would just speed by that it it gives you a second to look at and think oh my gosh it's beautiful there's a philosopher john o'donohue oh my gosh and i'm i know who john o'donohue is oh my gosh we have a lot to talk about yeah i i read john o'donohue's book um blessings every morning for my oh my gosh. morning prayer okay this is oh my god i'm so <laughs> excited i don't know anyone who knows who he is what's well, don't for, i'm gonna put a pin right here just for a second because just the other day i posted the cover to that book i said i wanted to share this with you guys because if you need to it sometimes it's hard for people to pray yeah because they just don't know how to pray and i yeah. said this is a wonderful book because if you don't know how to pray, just read this book and then it gets you to that place. And John O'Donohue and I posted it and somebody said they're playing a documentary about John O'Donohue at Banners. And I was like, really? And it was just a weird, you wow. know, auspicious timing. And then you bring him up. So, let me, okay. Let so me that, tell you a back. beautiful yeah. story that I know you will love. I'm so excited that you know him and love him. But but what I was going to say is he he said um, I got to be with him um, at one point. You did? Yeah. And, um, and I'll tell you in a second. But he, he said, um, just offhandedly, he said, you know, when we're down, when we die, we're down for 100,000 million years. While we're up, we ought to be living like wild people. Mm. And so, uh, yeah, I, um, gosh, I came across his book. Uh, I gave it as a gift. Um, I honestly got it for someone who is Irish. Uh, I found something with a beautiful binding and, and I cracked it and it changed my life. He, he lengthens my spine when I read his works, beautifies my gaze when I look at the world. And um, he had a, um, a retreat in Galway in Connemara. Oh, wow. Every year. And uh, I I went through undergrad and not coming from a moneyed uh, family. I put myself through school with scholarships and work and everything. But I told myself as a gift to myself with, for my graduation, I would go to Galway. 
So I um, put myself through college, got through, got to the end. Of course, I had no money to go to Galway, so you know that went away. Then I went back to get my master's degree, and I said to myself, you are going to Galway this time. When you get this degree in your hand, you're going to go celebrate. So I got to the end. Of course, I didn't have any money to go and do that. And then I um, fell in love with a gentleman for 10 years. We dated and decided to get married. And he said, where do you want to go on your honeymoon? I said, Galway. <laughs> I want to go to Galway. And so we decided to make that happen. Well, we decided also a few years prior to the marriage or wedding that it wasn't the right choice. And so I was teaching in this uh, beautiful little college um, in Columbus, Mississippi. And I didn't have anything in the coffers, really. But I took a, a check and I wrote the amount for the retreat, which was actually more than I personally had paid for any of my two degrees prior. And I didn't have the money for it, so I put it in a frame on the wall and I wrote, you are going to Ireland. And then I started working. I was working for the Judge Judy television show and I was finding little cases to go on the, t the TV show. You know, the people like uh, Love Triangle, Chickens Came Over, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. And one, uh, I just kept working that and working that and working that until finally I was able to take the check out of the frame and I mailed it and I went on my honeymoon alone to Galway. Wow. And uh, stayed uh, in Connemara in little thatch roof uh, um, cottages. In the mornings uh, we would gather and he would ask us that we not speak for the first hour of the day. So we were just present in, in the beautiful Irish landscape. And uh, we did various things, and one day we were going um, to up this mountain, and he said, you know, I'm going to give you a prayer of absolution before you go up. He said, I want you to get rid of it. He said, humans are the only creatures that carry things that bleed inwardly. Mm. He said, so let those things go before you come up to me for your absolution. You know, he said, said I'll send the sins a whistling. You go up the mountain, then we'll talk about death. And uh, so everybody did. Well, I took that very seriously. I, I sat down and I imagined that I was like a sonic toothbrush inside of my mind and my soul, thinking of all the things that I think about or loop on that are unhelpful for me and painful or poisonous uh, and, uh, and man, I was the last person up there and he turned around and he saw me and he clapped his hands and he did the thing and I went up, up to the top and, um, he, uh, he was going to talk about death while well, the rain started to come down. It rained so hard. It wasn't raining straight up and down. It was raining sideways. So he said, everybody has to get into the, the, this altar. There was a, a altar carved in the Connemara hillside, ancient. And so this whole band of people crammed in and. He said, does anybody have a song? And one of the women sang this beautiful Irish song. And then he said, anybody else? Well, everybody else was not going to volunteer themselves. And I will sing, but only if my audience has been drinking lots of wine. So. <laughs> but I said, you know what? I'm going to, um, I said, I have a song. And he, he looked at me, you know, with reverence. And I said, this is in honor of my father, Danny Hanneman. He taught this to me when I was five years old. Um, and... Uh, and I, st I stood there, I said, I kind of got to get up on my knees a little bit. So I'm, I'm standing, I'm, I'm up, and I said, I'm a little teapot, short <laughs> and stout. Here is my handle and here is my... Instead of making the spout, the arm went right down to the hips, and I looked both sides. I said, well, I must be a dang sugar ball. <laughs> and he looked at me, and then he laughed. <laughs> We got to the bottom of the mountain. He said, Brooke, he said, I, I want some priest to go up there doing his priestly things. And then there's a space-time continuum, and he sees Teapot up there. And uh, he laughed about it. Well, a couple days later, I was going to, we were going to the Cliffs of Moore. And I realized I was on the uh, bus that I had left my scarf, so I ran to get it. 
ran back and I heard my name. I turned around and it was John O'Donohue. He said, uh, get in the car. He said, the bus is full. So I got in the car and I got wow. to spend an hour and a half with him just driving. What a driving. treasure. I mean, really. It was, I mean, and we talked about, I was looking at going into a PhD program at that point and I told him, he asked me what my uh, dissertation was. I told him and he said, well, can I be on your committee? I said, what? <laughs> he said, yeah, you can have people within the university and without be on your committee. I said, I think I could probably find a place for you, yes. And so then we're driving down the road a little bit more and uh, he started talking about baptism. And I said, you know, I think that's the most beautiful, important, weighty tradition, uh, ceremony that you could ever do. And I've always yearned to do that. Um, my mother was, you know, I was born in 1975, so my mom was a flower child. She, she, she yeah. you know, gave me a kind of a ceremony herself, but I'd never done that through the church. And I told him, you know, I've always wanted to. The only thing that hangs me up is I said, I feel like our spirituality and God is so personal and huge and there is nothing more important. I said, and the only reason I haven't had that ceremony is because I'm afraid to walk into a, a place of worship and have them believe that I think everything they believe is right, true because right. I don't believe that you can tell another person you're going to be damned. Yeah, and especially if you're make, having to make a profession before your baptism or something, then right. you're in a situation right. like that. Yeah. And so I said, you know, I, I believe, I, I honestly believe it's all the same. I believe that we're all, I believe it's all the same. And I believe all the, the wars and, you know, the violence that has come from religion, we're really, it's all, it's all love and it's all massively important and beautiful and he looked at me in the rearview mirror and he said brooke do you want me to baptize you did john o'donohue baptize john o'donohue baptized are you me kidding me on the honeymoon that i went to alone and brooke that is it, that i'm actually kind of bowled over i mean it's like you just took my breath away for someone to just read a book or from my end you know and and know very little about the man himself to actually hear that that Wow. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just kind of stunned. It was so, I was stunned too. Yeah. It was so personal and beautiful. Um, it was, uh, it was a ceremony in the thatch roof cottage on the last day that we had there. And, um, he, um, he called me a teapot in my baptism. It was that personal. Uh, wow. I could not have scripted that film. If you, you know, know, I mean, that's, that's the creator looking directly at you, you know, I, I, not, you know, I could jump all over the place with this, but I, I sometimes think when um, there is a lack of faith, and I'm not talking about religion, I'm talking about a lack of faith or, or even a, a belief in a creator, I think it gets muddled up. You know, I was talking to my son about this a while back, and he said, you know, the universe is just so big. You know, I mean, there's so much. How could there be anything that cares about me? And I said, well... I get why you see that, because you see yourself as a speck. I said, but think about the last time you had compassion for a speck. Did you ever have compassion for an ant or a fly or a mosquito? And he was like, okay. And he's trying to follow me. And I said, well, reverse the lens in this expanse of creation, the speck of a planet. Right. And then you particularly, just a, a blink in existence, are actually particularly cared about. That's incredible. Right. That That is, opens up and cracks open a kind of love and compassion that is just beyond comprehension. And right. I, 
huge saying that, and, and that's John O'Donohue. There's God right in front of you in that moment, looking at you and calling you teapot. And I'm happy, I know it. You've probably heard me mention filming videos, building websites, creating logos, or building brands on this podcast. Well, there's a good reason for that. I'm a brand builder, and my brand is Parker Brand Creative Services. My team and I have built countless brands in the Gulf Coast region, and a lot of our work in the travel and tourism industry is experienced across the country, and honestly, the whole world. We have our specialties, web, logo, package, and whole brand design, as well as video production and photography. But the reality is we function as a full service advertising agency to businesses that don't really mesh well with larger advertising agencies or just don't wanna have in-house creative departments. But don't listen to what I say. Just go to our website, parkerbrandup.com and take a look at what we do. We're a show it, don't say it team. Okay, you should definitely say it too, but you know what I mean. That's parkerbrandup.com. We think sideways, we push forward, and we'll get your brand up. So take this, you've earned it, a melody and chorus. Just the fact that my mom used to always say, we're all of us walking each other home. We're all of us mm. just walking each other home. I, that might be Ram Dass, I'm not sure who it is. But that that kind of resonates with me. It resonates with me personally in raising children and also in um, working in the arts. You know, you're... Ooh if we can reach out to the people that are around us and, and shed some goodness and shine some goodness continuously, you know, don't squander any opportunity that you have to recognize something good in another person. Some, one of the humans, there's so many amazing humans in my life, but there was a woman named Trudy Bruner. She was a theater director. That woman could find something beautiful in absolutely anything she looked at. And I look at so many of us get, you know, glommed onto the, I'm going to critique this, but she could find the goodness in everything. And I try um, to kind of do the same thing and, and to realize that everyone around us, even, you know, it's easy to love the ones that are like-minded. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And the challenge comes whether, you know, whatever your re- religion is or belief system is, it probably has something to do with being a, uh, an, a, a better person, being the best kind of a human that you can be. So if you find yourself uh, gearing yourself up towards judging someone else, um, what can you do that can give compassion instead? Yeah, that is, that's a, that takes a little work. It's hard. It is. It's so easy to say, and it is very, very difficult yeah. to put into into place. But. I was tested by that recently. I mean, because I do, I I profess nonviolence and peace and compassion, and I I profess them as a way of life because I want those things. Right. But I fail and fall on my face, and especially when I'm tested. And then in in the last month I was tested in that regard. And I tried to put, um, put the philosophies to the test in a certain, a situation that, uh, normally I would say the standard would be to roll up your sleeves and ball up your fist type of situation, which I don't, I, I, I'm not going to say that that's never, uh, it's just not your highest choice. It's not my choice. I'd rather not be that person. But so I tried peace and nonviolence and it didn't work. <laughs> it actually went off the rails the opposite direction. And I, I've meditated on that. The interaction didn't bother me as much as the thoughts that I've had afterwards because it's complicated my thinking on it. You know, it hasn't changed my belief or my resolution to try again. Right. But it has made me realize that it's not as 
um, cut and dry as I want it to be. I want to believe that it's an overpowering force, and I still do believe it is. Love yeah. is, but love is slow. It is. And it's those, like nature. It grows, right? Right. I mean, and those moments of perceived failure or where you think you missed the mark or where you maybe didn't make the choices or maybe you made the choices outwardly, but inside you're on some kind of a loop with what you wish you had said, you know? Yeah, right. In those right. moments, though, I think it strengthens. I think those moments are necessary to strengthen the kind of living that you want to do. And I think that, you know, we fail and we get sometimes we get smashed down. But, uh, you know, Kinsukuroi, you know, put the put the pieces of the pottery back together. <laughs> laden it with gold and realize that you what are, are the odds you're going to so bring stronger. that up we just talked about that last yesterday on the did podcast <laughs> the gentleman that was on the podcast he, he brought it up as well did he yeah that's my mascot kinsukure yeah. and my wife as well it's important to her as well yeah. i mean yeah the cracks and the suffering and the pains we all have them and those are the pure gold sometimes right. that's the place that i, I those are the things that i dive into to get my blessings or wounds you know right i don't want to live in the pain but i do know that that's where their treasures most of the time they're stored and stitched up inside those old scars right they are that's where your opportunities for growth are well and then you know people like john o'donohue in these circumstances where there is a conflict or where you need to try and you want to be better one thing I have to remind myself is that I have masters all around that I can go to for advice, and he's one of them. You know, yeah. I don't have to stay in my own head about this. Yeah. I think it's good exercise to do it, but when I I can forget that, I can go, why am I? I have to kind of shock myself out of it, like a Zen master come whack me in the head while, with a stick while I'm meditating and go, stop meditating. You know, I need to like sometimes have something do that because I have to remember I have a library. Right? Why right. do I have a library? Because I have my masters here. You, back you know, to, yeah. I can go to them for advice and hear the words. And most of the time, if I listen, there's something there. Oh yeah. You yeah. know. And sometimes it comes in a jazz song on the radio, and sometimes That's right. it comes in a play that you walk into that you've seen before, but all of a sudden it hits you. Well, even just the church side. I mean, I, I unfortunately, and this is judgment, but I've tended to kind of just disregard those most of the time because it's like cleverness and I, i'm i guess in advertising writing headlines i'm not a huge fan of cleverness anymore it's i've kind of grown out of trying to be funny and clever uh -huh. and so i like direct more and um but the other morning there's one around the corner from my son's school and um what it says is and i read it every morning now and i love it it says god god didn't bring you this far just to leave you here and I don't know where it comes from. I'm sure it's from somewhere, but I like that. You know, it, it's a reminder that I don't have to stay in that spot. You know, that there the journey's not over. There's still stuff to do. There's still changes to be made. Still right. working, becoming. You yeah. know, I think it all does come back to you know the guarding your mind. Um, so many poets and philosophers, John O'Donohue, plays songs. The message comes back again and again. You are in control of your mind. You, you are in control of your mind, and your mind makes your reality in a way that scientists have been able to find um, and substantiate. You know, it's not a theory, but in actual fact, I think there was a study. It was, um, I want to say, it was Olympic athletes. Uh, if it wasn't Olympic athletes, it was some other high-end uh, group of athletes. But they hooked their bodies up to electrodes. And they had them go through whatever their physical 
if they were a javelin thrower, if they were a high jumper, and they, they looked at where the brain lit up when they went through each step of their movement. And so um, after they did that, they took these same athletes and they again hooked them up with electrodes, but in this time in a darkened room, and they put them through kind of a, a stilling kind of meditation kind of exercise to where they could really, really focus. And then they had them go through in their mind every step not just kind of like uh, you know I'm imagining throwing the javelin but you put your foot down your foot is in the dirt you move your heel to st steady yourself you you go back and you you feel your arm engage and move forward and they realized they watched the brain and they put the two uh, scans next to each other and they saw that the brain lit up in the same places when they were physically doing it and when they were imagining do it interesting and yeah. the implications of that you know there's you could talk about that all day long but one of the huge implications of that is your brain does not know the difference between the actual action of something and you thinking it through. Mm. So what does that mean when we're sitting there thinking about how much we can't stand our, you know, ex-boyfriend or how you know, much <laughs> right. we hate politics or, you know, all of the hate and all of the anger or all of the, if, if you're sitting there disparaging yourself, I'm too fat, I'm too ugly, I'm too poor, you know, my relationship isn't good, I hate my job. Whether or not, and to what degree those things are actually true in the outside world, they are true in your mind. Yeah. Whatever you think is true in your mind. So guard it yeah no i agree and that that really makes me think about how important some things are to me if you watch your mind enough and you can you can learn what triggers it very easily and for me i know i have certain triggers for peace and otherwise and so it, i've always noticed uh, whether it be a sound or a song or a smell i've learned to try and i have done this in my life where i've got certain things that i know are going to trigger peace in me mm -hmm. i have a um a rose oil that I use when I'm praying on my beads and I've been doing it for a few years now and it's associated now I can smell that I can just the minute I put it on my fingers it gets it brings me into a space okay. I like having that tool because I need it and it helps me guard my mind oh well draw from my mind it's like all the little things that are stored in these pockets of like little good spaces i can sort of take a bite out of that right. because it's the opposite the opposite is true if a let's say someone's a client or whatever a situation with someone is repeating and it's negative god you're so right the minute you start talking about it and obsessing about it and even venting about Looping it on it yeah the feeling gets right back into you as if it were happening, even though it's not happening. Right. You know, and so you're just kicking the wheel, so to speak. I mean, and keeping it spinning. And I don't, I don't like that. Mm -mm. I don't like the way I feel because I'm just repeating it. And they're not, it's not even happening. I have to tell my, my son that a lot when he's in conflict with folks. I said, you know, you're giving all of your energy back to this situation all over again by right. reliving it right you know it's really true it's really true so all of this that you're talking about which i love that's what i love about this show and the beauty of it is when i guess when people listen to this they get to find out that they may just see banners right, right? but they get to find out the heart and soul Right. That just beats behind that. I mean, your whole, again, your whole history, all of your memories, all of these wonderful things, and then pains as well are all a working towards, you know, making yeah. that a better program for people. It's really true. You know, Jody Taylor was on and had that great podcast where you guys were talking. And in, in that, you know, you discover what is the passion that spurs someone into this position, you know? And, yeah. And 
and if we if we're coming to it with passion and and respect it's probably because there are things that have lit us up in the past and we have a desire to light someone else up in return you know snippets and stories and experiences gosh i remember just one story about um there was a shakespeare troupe that was doing a production of the tempest i want to say that it was in oregon but wherever it was it was waterside it was an outdoor production and the tempest has a portion in it where there's you know there's a um uh kind of a um uh, prospero he's got magical powers and he has a a a slave a, a little spirit a sprite who has to do his bidding named Ariel and he at one point tells Ariel if you do my bidding you know I'll, I'll set you free and so uh, in the play uh, Ariel does and is is set free well in the play that's just what happens the spirit is set free we go into the next um, the next scene well when you take people who have passion and art and creativity and think outside the box and want to spread that fire and that light for art forward you get the most amazing art out of it and in this case the the set was set within a band shell right next to a lake they timed the the play they started at a certain time and and by the time in the play that the spirit was set free it was in it was it was the sun was going down so it was that violet light in the mm. sky and right in that where they were next to that lake there would be a mist that would settle over the water and the whole stage was surrounded in trees and um and fireflies and underneath you know a starry sky as magical as you could possibly imagine and um and so in that moment when Prospero says, you know, you are free, the the actor who played um, the spirit, Ariel, turned around away from the audience with his back to the audience and just started running towards the water, the water that has the mist over top of it and, and you know, the, the violet sky above and just runs just free. And the audience is thinking, well, of course, he's getting to the edge of the water, so of course he's going to veer right or veer mm. left. He doesn't. He runs over the water. He, <laughs> he runs on water and disappears in a mist behind him. And what it is was the set designers had put uh wood about an inch below the water's level uh-huh. um and with grips on it so the actor wouldn't slide and the the actor actually ran on water into the mist and was surrounded that's incredible you take one person's passion in the player that they wrote or the song that they wrote you take another person's passion and the skill that they've learned to become the guitarist or the artist or the dancer or the actor you marry those together and then tell a story that expands our understanding of humanity and i believe that if you have, uh, if you're in the audience, or if you're hanging the lights, or if you're volunteering at the front desk, the more that you get exposed to this art and see all of this humanity, the more it becomes difficult not to be tolerant. We become tolerant when we start to see other people's passions, and mm-hmm. I just, I don't know. Going back to banners and going back to the work that Jesse does and Jody does and and all of the volunteers that have been with us for decades or you know years or whatever just everyone's putting together something to 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 spread that I think yeah. it's I, I listening to you just this a thought just occurs to me that you know art and creativity will save the world it'll save us it'd save our creature it really would I mean so much of what we do in this world isn't about that you know and but when we get to enter those places we feel different yeah um and somebody on the show i can't exactly remember who said that everybody's creative in some way oh for sure you know and i i think that's true that creativity manifests itself self in so many ways 
but you know by calling one thing art and creativity and the other not we we sort of limit that again you know and if it were seen broader i guess and the the definition of what creativity was was broader um and not just in the arts i think that we'd have a a more peaceful world i think you'd see art and science working together in harmony because in my my worldview I don't see a difference. I really don't. I mean, there was a photograph. My family and I were at 1911, and there was a macro photograph of a snowflake molecule. And it had been digitally touched up, but we just stood there and looked at it. And I told my wife, I said, you know, I can't not, I don't just, I can't look at this and go, that's neat. I could stare at this all day and comprehend the design of this yeah now on one hand you'd say it's science that's a molecule you know someone had to have a piece of scientific equipment to to look at this right but on the other hand it's in an art gallery for a reason because it is art and it's just this deep deep code of creativity yeah i don't know i just i can't look at anything now and not see that and I, i mean it's i almost have to dilute myself i think to sometimes navigate the the standard right yeah i have to delude myself that that's who i have to be that it's like two people how do you mean well like put on a certain set of uh a certain set of eyes and clothes to navigate the world of timelines and clocks and all that kind of stuff right because there's and when i was younger i would say i probably slipped into the other state more right. often but now what's what it is is i'm having i have to like more conservative on i that. have to yeah. choose to go into that because i much prefer the magical creative world right you know that is not you know talking wires and power lines and yeah. you know things like the tiktok of things right i like the natural cycle i like the pace of it i i think it it is the pace we were designed for, not the pace we live at. Correct. You know, and the pace we live at st- can steal us away from from things like that. Oh yeah, you, you, all of a sudden you realize you have your foot in your grave, and it's like, wait a second. Yeah, right. That was really important stuff I should have been doing. That's right. And I mean, the- you know, you would again bring it back to banners. It gives people a moment to step away from the grave, so to speak, right? And, yeah, and step into that world of creativity. And then you look at, you know, again, what's important, what kind of effect are you having? Our first our first production is uh, Josephine Baker. I got a chance to do a lecture at the Sage Series um, a couple days ago on Josephine Baker's life. And, you know, this is the first woman of color born in America that became an international superstar. She left and uh, she lived in St. Louis, saw the, the riots and the lynchings and the murders, uh, was, you know, in in the state uh, of our country in that time completely not at leisure to live freely and then at 19 got on a boat went over to paris stepped off the streets and you know and all of a sudden is not only accepted but sought after and and then turned around to use her celebrity in this most amazing way she was um the only woman to speak on the march at washington with martin luther king jr and her words i've said them so many times but they're so powerful she said you know I can, I have walked into the palaces of kings and queens. I have walked into the homes of presidents and I cannot walk into a hotel in the country I was born and get a cup of coffee. Wow. 
And mm. so then you take that, that this person who was born in 1906, who's forgotten by the younger generation, largely, except for maybe a social studies class where they had to, you know, make a flashcard to memorize something for a test and then, you know, purge that file. And then we have a one woman show um, where that woman is being embodied that, that you get to see this, this person who was such a force. And I think that art can bring us back to that, you know, and then, you know, just honoring what's important. We've got, you know, there's another gentleman, um, Abdullah Ibrahim, he's coming. And within nine days of being on our stage, he will literally be on the stage of the Kennedy Center getting the award for from the National Endowments for the Arts for Jazz Master. And there is no higher award in our nation. And wow. we get to have that on stage. Right here. In Lake Charles for $20 a ticket. Yeah. This is a legend, you know, and... And so it's, for me, it's so humbling to know that, you know, and, and I could go on and on about the whole series, which I won't, but it's so humbling to know that what we're doing, what Jody and Jesse and I and the founders of the festival and, and Dr. Brickell and everybody are doing is, you know, honoring history, putting art out there, putting out lectures, putting out documentaries, and just again, reminding us of the past that some people have taken what can happen when you give your passion enough time to learn the chords and the fret changes and and when you you know honor your art and so it's it's just really exciting you know i'm i'm sitting here listening to you and you know i know our company worked on the poster and your poster is so beautiful <laughs> but it's interesting and and it's i have to admit i'm kind of ashamed because i'm probably like a lot of people so often with events or things like banners or anything someone has worked so hard to tailor this lineup and work to get these connections and bring in these people each one of these people is an egg that you can just crack open that's full of their own history and beauty oh gosh yeah and yet for most of us consumers unless we have a particular interest in one of them like, mm, yeah. yeah it's a name on a list right. it's a lineup right we don't realize that each one of those names, and I'm, I'm guilty again. I mean, I see the names, I typed them out. Yeah, yeah. You know, but to dive into each one of them, yeah. and you just talked just about a couple, two out of eighteen. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you could probably go on and on about oh, them. Oh yeah, we and could so, be here for days. But it's a painting of a person, right? Yeah. Their art themselves. Yeah. I don't know. It just makes me realize how sad it is that we just. And I don't know. I don't know if it's just something that's because of the pace of the world again, the time. It's but the pace of the world. Do I we think. have time to sit and dive in and go? We don't. Let me sit. look at each one of these people and yeah. really see what the because that's high value. What y'all are bringing? Oh, it is. And, and how high do, cultural value? How do you express that to people? You know, you go through the, you do the press releases, you do the, you know, the TV, you do the ads, you do the posters, you do the flyers, you do all these things, and yet, as consumers, and I'm guilty of it too. I see it on the wall, and I'm like, okay, that looks kind of cool. Don't know much about it. Go, gotta go get my kid. Gotta go do my blah blah. And you don't know, but. You know, there's another, I think of the play called Six Guitars, that's part of the series. There's, it's, this is one man who has a chair and a guitar. That's all the production value of the show. That man plays six different characters mm. um, who each play six different genres of guitar. So he plays classical, he plays rock and roll, he plays blues. And with each one as a physical actor, not just a musician, he's able to use his face and his voice and his body to embody these humans and these souls. If you closed your eyes when he's playing, you know, the blues man, uh, you would think that you were looking at an African-American of about 70 years.
years old. When you open your eyes, he's a little ginger-headed, you know, white-skinned, young, you know, 30-something guy, but he has invested so much in being able to become that, you know, become yeah. that person. And in that show, I look at that and I'm like, okay, nobody knows who this actor is. I'm bringing gold to the stage, but who's going to know and who's going to come, you know? Yeah. And how do I reach people? And I think that's why, like, things like being able to work with the Sage series and, and partner with people that's, you know, a room of 100 people and maybe some will come out. But if you keep on speaking and keep on going out and keep on trying to, partner with people and just make people aware of things um you know yeah it'll be there i think i think that realistically and that's again talking about this show why i think it came to be is i think people are hungry for deeper dives you know to actually have the whole meal and not just to smell it right and i think it it's making that time and knowing that that's out there because all the things you mentioned and i, I think about this from our perspective too in media and marketing those are the things that everybody's doing, you know, right. doing the press releases and doing the, you know, the billboards and doing the print ads and all that stuff. And that right. stuff is, you know, you need it for general awareness. Right. But beyond general awareness, there has to be a format. How do you get that? Yeah. yeah. I mean, so somebody can really taste it and go, right. I want that. That's, uh, you know, it's not uh, in a previous incarnation in my life. I was a professor for five years um, up in Columbus and I loved, you know, they had, you would teach within the theater department. I had all my classes. I love teaching all of those, but they're the larger like a theater appreciation course where you have 400 kids or 300 kids in there. And so many professors hate those courses. I absolutely loved them really? because you would stand in front of them and you would give them, you know, this is what this person did. This is, you know, this is Shakespeare. If you don't think you like Shakespeare, it's because you had a bad teacher in grade school. You know, yeah. if you don't understand like how just overwhelmingly beautiful that canon is, it's because somebody didn't have passion and shame on them. Yeah. And then being able to give that to them or being able to give them, you know, the crucible, which was, you know, written about the Salem witch trials, but it was written during the McCarthy trials. And it was the only way that the playwright could talk about what was happening with the red scares by couching it in Salem witch trials. Yeah. We're not talking about now, you know, how art can do that and, and giving them, you know, different pieces of things they would never have seen or known about. You know, I was talking just the other day, um, at work about a play that I love. It's called uh, Marat Saad is the short version of it, but it's called the full title is The Persecution and Assassination of Jean-Paul Marat as performed by the inmates of the Asylum of Sherrington under the direction of the Marquis de Sade. And it's a play about inmates of an insane asylum putting on a play about the French Revolution. And uh. each one of those characters has a parallel, like the person who plays um, Jean-Paul Marat, who, you know, started the revolution in large part. He, and, you know, died in his bathtub for, with a skin condition. He was played by a paranoid schizophrenic undergoing hydrotherapy. Wow. And this <laughs> is a play that you could, I mean, you could spend a whole lifetime just looking at this play, but you got a room full of 200 kids who watch, you know, YouTube videos all day sure they've never heard of anything like that you know yeah i you know it's it is kind of a shame and i don't want that for my children and because it's hard to just isolate them though from the world and what they what's out there because everybody else is consuming it yeah. and it becomes the norm but and as soon as you take it away it becomes more interesting so yeah right my son's been, kind of had a little experiment with that in the last uh, eight weeks he did like a social media fast completely technology How fast old? Uh, 15 yeah and He's just been fascinated by his own mind and yeah. what it did to him. You know, he was like, it's, 
almost made him a little disgusted a little bit towards it jaded towards social media and stuff like that but he um I don't know it was just interesting conversations we were having you know the things that he was having revelations about and i was like this is good yeah but it made me think of when i was his age or even when i was in my 20s when i would read a book there are certain books and i keep i keep them with me believe it or not i keep copies um in a bag and i carry it everywhere i go because it's the books that i remember where i was when i finished it right and those books i mean you can you know you say whether it's a book by Don, John O'Donohue. Uh, for me, The Prophet was one of those books. Right. Um, Be Here Now, Ram Dass, you brought right. him up. That was Be another now. one of those yeah. books that, like, when I turned to the last page, I, it stuck. I'm like, I can still smell the room I was sitting in or where I was at because it just leaves an imprint. Right. But I had time and space for that imprint to be made. In the last 20 years of my life, I can I can say that the pace has completely changed. I mean, I keep talking about pace. I don't know why I'm hung hung on that today, but I guess listening to you, you started off just describing those memories, and I realize as I'm listening to you that you have that takes time to form, and we have to give children and people, not just children, people time to form those memories to build an attachment to something right. and for it to sink in and dye them you know right you know i to, love it yeah to fully saturate who they are so right. when they need those things those books poems encounters with people they're not just cars in the fast lane just swooping by right right i don't know and banners <laughs> i keep bringing banners back because i i guess trying to make that connection to it locally that's really what i see and i i'm guilty you know, of, of letting banners be in the fast lane or on the side yeah. lane, you know, sweeping yeah. by. I'm guilty of not paying attention yeah. to what's been right in front of me. I think we all are at some time or another. You know, this is, though, as a team, this is our first season that we've built. And so it's really, this is a passion project. You know, yeah. we're starting with Josephine. We've got six guitars. We've got Billy Strings, who's coming and playing bluegrass, who's known for breaking multiple strings in one song <laughs> because that's how much he's got in him, you know? Yeah. And then, we, then we had the big, fun, fiery, you know, Red Hot Chili Pipers, the back, yeah. bagpipe rock and roll, you know? Because you, you don't want to just go for the jugular all the time. You have to have the light and the levity also. And, you know, incredible lectures. Just, you know, there's a... Um, uh, Professor Bullhoff from McNeese, he's going to talk about his mother and how she was a, a famous philosopher. And then there's a gentleman from New Orleans who I can't wait to see his lecture, William April. He was an NOPD officer for, I think, 20 years, decorated. And in his lecture, he talks about what does it take for a mind like yours and mine, a normal functioning brain, to, to shift into that of a violent perpetrator, mm. a violent criminal. And then once that happens, how does that person then find the the lines into their their victims? Mm. And where do you align with that or not align with that? Yeah. And so, you know, there's just interesting thing after thing after thing like that within the series. It's no no one person is gonna like everything, but that's like life. You're not gonna like every TV show or every film you see, but man, if you invest some time in it, there's there's no greater return you know and i know it sounds like an advertisement or whatever but literally eighty dollars you get you get a ticket to every single one of those events i think it it comes down to five dollars an event you're going to see 
Abdullah Ibrahim. You were going to see like a show that won nine best of fests in the international fringe circuit. And then we're bringing in Puddle's Pity Party too. That's the last one that isn't hasn't been announced within the larger season. Oh, I saw that. Yeah, the, I, I get Puddle's Pity Party. Yeah, I've been seeing the promos for that. And that, you know, I've heard has been the best show that some people that I trust very much as I've ever seen in their life. You know, he breaks the fourth wall and directly connects. And, uh. he, and I'm so excited to meet him too because he will not, when he is in costume, he will not speak. Um, he just exudes backstage, you know, he really? just is, you know, in this space and, and he and opens his mouth and sings like, you know, Pavarotti and but sings <laughs> songs like Chandelier and does it in a way where you're looking at the pain and the agony and the need, you know, uh-huh. of a soul and how that can touch you, you know, and other people might be like, hmm, seven foot clown, that's weird. But it's like, no, calm down, see, like sit in the audience please you know yeah you know it's interesting it's making me just think and i guess again selfishly i'm the one who gets to hear this information first you know before we launch it but i love what it's doing to me listening to you talk about this this way because i'm sitting here going as a parent oh my god as a parent i owe this to my 15 year old oh my lord because what he's going to get exposed to this could be just this one season if I bring him to 50% of that. Right, three shows, four shows. He's going to be going, Wow. I mean, he's at that junction in his life where he's trying to figure out what he's going to do for the rest right. of his life. He's an artistic, kind of creative-minded child, socially you know, aware. Uh, but he doesn't know for sure. He's got all these decisions in front of him. He could go be exposed to that and like have his honeysuckle moment right. you know, and go, I saw the thing that made me shift my rudder right. towards this thing. 30 years from now, he's telling his kids about it yeah, and going, yeah, I remember my dad took me to this. Yeah. And that ties to all of y'all and what you've done in your history. It's I just love connected. that. It's all connected. Yeah. yeah. That's, Put that child like up in the fourth row, like center, center, and let that wash over him. Yeah. Because especially our children, they're so used to digital um, experiences, whether it's social media video games television blah blah there's not the human body in front of you yeah and there's no way to translate a live human body onto film we can film things but you don't feel that you know you don't feel the resonance in your bones i remember last season sitting and watching arturo sandoval he's a 10-time grammy award winner and um it was my first you know first couple months with banners and we got the show up and um i i sat backstage stage right just sat on the floor with my knees under my chin and I was sitting there watching through the wings this legend and watching you know just close enough to touch right there and just you know I sometimes wish that I could just put my hand on somebody's shoulder and Uh, get the whole of their life experiences that's so funny I do too I think that's a superpower that I wish (laughs) that I could have and same thing with buildings you know I want to touch you know 1911 downtown Lake Charles and know everything that's happened but, you know, the chance to be in the room with things, it's just magnificent and it's important and, and it helps it helps people, especially the age of your son, who are looking to try and find things. I also say get them involved in arts no matter what. Yes. And I tell my students, you know, when I was teaching acting, um, 
I don't, I'm not looking for everyone to become an actor. That's not realistic. We're not going to all become actors, Mm -hmm. but I can promise you that nothing that you are learning right now will not serve you in your life because communicating with people, being able to articulate your inner passions and needs and thoughts, being able to make eye contact, being able to use your body to communicate something. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that you have to, you know, endeavor to be on days of our lives. This is going to come in handy. You know, one day you're going to go to a job interview those skills come in handy they do one day you're gonna fall in love with somebody and you're gonna want to ask them out on a date that's gonna right. you know, come into play one day you might get pulled over for speeding and try to talk yourself out of the ticket those skills come into play you know being able to communicate and be real and be in your body and talk you know yeah it's just art art is never a waste of time i totally agree i mean it came up on the podcast yesterday and i, I actually can't wait for th- that one to launch so it's relevant to what you're saying but um the guest and I were talking about a teacher that had affected us both at, at two different time periods in our life, but in the same way and kind of through the same methods. But it was related to acting and speaking. And if I hadn't had that teacher at that particular time in my life and, you know, share those skills and her knowledge with me and then push a little bit too to keep the interest high, the encouragement up. I wouldn't be sitting here talking That's what I was just with thinking. you. This conversation would no, not it would happen not happen because I would still probably be leaps and bounds behind trying to become a person right. and and get out of get into my comfort zone still. Right. So yeah, being able to communicate, I learned the value of that from that person through acting because it was you know speech and theater, yeah. and you know it is valuable. It really, really is because I I find even in my job I can tell when I'm communicating with somebody that is not comfortable with communicating. <laughs> And, and I don't mean that as a slight to them, but yeah. I go, someone never Some taught them in a healthy way right. the value of communicating. Right. You know, whether it be in written form or face-to-face. Right. Um, and that it's okay to communicate. Yeah. The other thing, I think maybe people don't feel as safe anymore. You know, because there's a place for someone to attack you now. Sure. You know, it's sort of like there's a place for people to sabotage you. You, can ha- you and I could talk. Yeah. And share personal things, uh-huh. and I can go sabotage you online. Sure, yeah. You know, and use everything you've told me as a weapon. Right. When you live in that world, it makes it people are a little more afraid. Absolutely. I really do think they are. So building up a, a brand around yourself as a way to create sort of a facade so people feel like they can't penetrate that because you have this sort of brand vanguards right. all around you. Right. And I, I don't know. I, I like the I like that. I like truth and directness directness not in a negative way but just just plain honesty and truth um i don't know i think there's just a great value in that that's perhaps even being lost oh yeah you know we're, yeah. we're forgetting how to communicate uh, one thing i was talking about to, with my wife i was telling her that uh i recently watched a documentary on uh amazon the Kalchakra um mandala I don't think that's the actual name of the med- the documentary. The name of the documentary is called Chakra. I don't know if you you're probably familiar with it. The Tibetan sand mandalas that they build. Sure, yeah. So was, this whole documentary was about the whole Kalchakra ceremony that the Dalai Lama does, but it was intertwined with a woman's personal story about death. Mm-hmm. You know how she her whole life had lost someone in her life when she was young, and it's haunted her her yeah. whole life, and she's never really made peace with it. And so she was kind of going through this the Tibetan culture in the foothills, you know, of the Himalayas to try to get a grasp on this. They use the Kalchakra as a part of that. But what part I'm getting to, I'm I'm telling you that because it's a good documentary. I'm writing it down right now. But um, 
Tibetan Buddhists debate. Have you ever watched them debate? It's no. a part of their spiritual training. No. And it's not to argue. And I love it. I love it so much. I could watch them do it all day long because two people will sit across from each other, two you know, monks, and one monk will pose a question to the monk across from him. And then they claps his hand like this. As a signal that I am through and I'm handing my question to you. Yeah. I want, he's not going to say anything until you have had a moment to think about it and then you respond. But then you give him an answer, but you also ask another question and then he pops it back to you. And they'll do this and they're smiling the whole time, but they're challenging each other. Right. And I told my wife, I said, there's something beautiful about that that's lost today. The joy of debate and the joy of having your mind changed engaging and getting new information and going oh i didn't have all the pieces you know maybe i need to consider something new and add to and it's just this beautiful energy i don't know it was just it almost made me cry and they were laughing and having a good time and i thought we don't do this right and i think it goes back to just protecting yourself you know just you go through your life and you create this thick skins and you have your walls and and then you you're depleting yourself from an experience i think of my my personal life you know um in relationships when i met my husband um i had decided that i was very happy in my life and was very fulfilled um with my child and my job and didn't need anyone around me and and when he asked me to go out with him, it wasn't until I found out that he had been a nuclear specialist that I would even go out with him because I knew <laughs> that he was vetted and was not crazy. You know, I knew that the government might let you fight in the trenches if you're crazy, but they're not going to let you handle the nuclear weapons. So That's pretty I was like, funny. Okay, I'll go out on a date with you. But I had, you know, that poor, beautiful man had so many mountains to climb because I had decided I was absolutely finished, you know. And I look at my experience in my life right now, and it's like, oh, I'm so wildly blessed by this person and 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 their different opinions and and you know we're open to changing each other's minds about things you know holding hands or marrying or having a child so funny you bring that up my wife and i've had this conversation too because i feel like we have a pretty pleasant relationship i mean and compared to relationships i'd had previous to her um there wasn't like uh i hate to say energy vampire but i right. felt depleted many many times back like an ebb and a flow and a back and a forth and a stealing and a giving it was just a lot of that right. but with her i've never felt that not not once and yeah. so we've over the years we've talked about this and so the the illustration we've come up with is most of us are are sort of like half circles and we're looking for the other half of our circle right but the minute that we do that we start sort of feeding off of the other one mm-hmm. and and it's not going to last because the circuit you might be moving one way around the circle and the other one's the other way and there's just sparks yeah. and then when that person's gone you only have half a circle still and so then you're hungry again for right. another person you know right. but when you're in a relationship where you've got two circles they can kind of come together and make this sort of infinity loop and it's sort of harmonious they don't they make a new thing yeah you know, and so that feels more like the way the relationship has been. She's still who she is. I'm who I am. It's and, so nice to be able to be oh. yourself. Then that's the freedom that I just have come to experience that it wasn't a part of my life before, you know, and it's yeah. just, it makes all the difference in the world. And, and then it opens you up. You know, there's a question sometimes about like, where are all the Michelangelo's these days? Like what happened that we don't have a Da Vinci and a Galileo? Like, mm. you know, and you know, some of the kind of thoughts is I, I feel is like, it's because people don't feel 
free to be themselves and they're not supporting of each other they're you know and and i think that once you get around someone where you can be free and be yourself it makes all the difference in the world i think it's a huge that's interesting not you know to tie it back to the guest from yesterday said something very similar related he said and it just in the last three years that he finally allowed himself to be himself yeah. and and stopped being afraid of that and he said everything has changed oh yeah your health you know? gets better you don't have as many goals you know it's sure. just huge huge yeah well you get uh, to kind of not breathe behind that sort of suffocating uh cellophane mask you right. know i mean that's moist and hot and heavy and who, who wants to live like that right i mean i've lived like that before watched or tracked or you know feeling that you have people around you who are just waiting for you to fall into a trap or a hole it's just yeah. when you're free of that it's a pretty amazing thing uh, if you don't mind i want to kind of jump back something's just been kind of in my mind this whole time sure. and and you we don't have to talk about it if you don't want to but you know you were describing what happened with your parents and then you were also pregnant yeah so I just can't escape this idea that in this very short span of time, you're dealing with birth and death at the same time. Yeah. What did, I mean, did it change you oh, or did it just make you, I mean, I guess, is that a, is that a hinge moment? It, 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 it has changed me for sure. Um, it has definitely changed me. Um, I, I had not had the experience of losing my parents, and I've lost both of them. Um, one who is no longer breathing, and the other one who is trapped into dementia. And I don't know of anything. I just don't. I can't wrap my mind around that. And it's difficult to walk around in the world, and you're busy with your, you know. At the time this was also happening, I was getting a new staff at Banners. Like we had a complete overhaul with that. Um, and so there was that gigantic, you know, um, responsibility that was there too. And I, I have had things in my life happen that required a great deal of resilience. And I've always felt, you know, I don't like people who, to brag about themselves too much, but, but I have been proud of the fact that I'm resilient. And, um, and this thing had me on my knees, like just on my knees. And, you know, I turned to someone, um, and said, you know, it's fun because I, I walk around and my acting training comes into great mm, play. Mm. I, I can, I'm, I have been classically trained as an actor and I can stand in a boardroom and I can have a, you know, a conversation and we can talk numbers and we can talk, you know, sponsorships and we can, you know, laugh and joke and I can, you know, have all this time and then I can get into my car and sob so much I can't even, yeah. you know, drive. And yeah. it, then it comes to me, it's like, why do, you know, we are having to to lessen who we are because we can't we can't be emotionally honest in every moment or else we'd have snot on our faces at a sponsorship meeting you can't mm-hmm. do that you, know? yeah, you right, have right. to be able to hold yourself and carry yourself i'm grateful for acting training because of that but having gone through birth and death and what feels to me to be way worse than death um which is dementia um and to have uh, bring a child into the world on top of that it's it's just staggering it just it makes it difficult for you to be drawn into petty things for one yeah. thing um and it just makes you really appreciate the that humans are jewels humans are jewels and we have armies of them around us that we are ridiculously blessed by and it's important to let them know that you know it's important to never waste an opportunity that just cuts right to the heart of i think what i mentioned earlier about why i think when i tried peace 
and honesty and nonviolence, why it stung so bad. Because you just sort of said that. I felt like we were both missing, me and the person I was in conflict with, were missing that pearl of great price, right? I mean, I was like, in my mind, I was like, can't you see I'm your brother? Not like literally, but like, right. can't you see you have an ally right. down right here? Like, I actually love you. Can't you see? And I felt like it was just this treasure was being... Pearls before swine. You know, we were just throwing it away for the sake of what? For conflict? Right. And I just couldn't understand. And I mean, I think that's why it's been so heavy for me these last weeks, because I don't understand the value of the conflict versus the value in just being okay and going, we actually are just people too. Right. You know, and I, I don't have hate towards you or anything so i don't know it was just a strange thing it's still i'm still carrying it i can tell i'm still carrying it it. yeah yeah i think that you know i have had one uh challenge in my life along those lines that the damage that came from the interaction of this individual is so profound and 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 i have had to do a lot of work on that you know and I think that it's a cliche, but I think that it's also true because if you're if you're playing Cruella of Deville in a movie or mm-hmm. you know Adolf Hitler, your performance of that human being is going to be very uh, it's going to be a facade, um, one dimensional. If you don't understand who that person is, and so you have to see why why is this person doing this? Why are they not accepting the gift of peace and insisting on the gift of conflict and antagonism and yeah, unkindness? And and then you have to realize there's no way you you can't magically get into their head, but no. something has happened to that individual to make them into what they are. Nothing yeah, in nature sure. just plops out of the, the the sky. A polished stone has been in the water for a very long time. It was rough. It got that way, mm-hmm. and it truly is because of that friction and. And sometimes wow. I think when you look at artists like Tennessee Williams or Josephine Baker or any blues singer or so many, it's the it's the pressure of the negativity that makes the diamond. And mm. if it hadn't been for that pressure, if Tennessee Williams had lived in a time where homosexuality was A-OK, then would we have the amazing place that we have in our American theater canon? I don't know that we would. If, yeah. if the blues, you know, the great blues singers of our time did not have poverty and illness and pain and violence in their lives would we have those songs would mama cass have had anything to say would Jimi hendrix have had anything to play i don't know that we would and so there's gifts in and that's something john o'donohue would always say there's gifts just below the surface of everything i mean it's the buddhist mud no mud no lotus right i mean it really is it's uh easy to forget but daily but it is the truth isn't it 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 really is. is god makes me think of my own my own father's passing uh you know ugly death and um illness you know, drawn out deterioration and how painful that was to everybody in the family, especially my mother and my sisters. And, you know, that was a pressure cooker. It was that pressure that you're talking about. And I remember, and I've talked about this on this podcast before, but I remember the feeling it shaping me. It wasn't just like something in retrospect. Yeah. It was very much in the moment. I could, took on the role of an observer. Yeah. And I think that honestly, probably was my 
maybe protection, survival but mechanism. survival mechanism. Yeah. I don't know. Whatever it was, it was good. Yeah. It didn't. It didn't function to shield me necessarily, but it allowed me to navigate those waters. And in the process, it was like I was sitting on a ship watching it happen, and I was able to feel it without being crushed by it. Right. In fact. The funny, the irony and the little symbols around someone's death. I don't know if that's happened to you where things just seem to auspiciously arise and sort of begin to orbit in your life around a person. Yeah. Yeah. That was that way with my dad. Uh, when he, My dad and I had a connection. Of comic books was our thing. And when I, I had to write his... Um, that was obituary, but then I also had to write like a eulogy, something to say at his funeral. And I wanted to be honest. I don't like... I never was a big fan of just sugarcoating something. So I was like, you know, I wrote something about Thor because my dad, that was one of our favorite comic books. And oddly enough, my dad was a carpenter and he, I have his hammer that he used his whole life. And so I ended up writing something about that and the hammer and all these things about that. Right. And so a lot of things just kept happening with that hammer and symbols of hammers. And so now I still wear, I wear an iron hammer around my neck. And it's funny what I've come to think about that hammer because my dad was a pretty aggressive guy. But what I've come, what what's happened is the name of Thor's hammer is Molnir, which translates into Crusher. And in meditating on that hammer, that sounds pretty violent. It's the Crusher, but that's not what it's become for me. What it's become for me is just what you described: the Crusher. It's the pressure. It's the moment of death that's really ugly, and it's not crushing you to make you worse forging you yeah it's forging you into something new and better and honestly chipping away you know maybe like shells on the outside and and really making something it's building something it's not destroying something right you know i don't know it's just interesting yeah death death is just it's such a fascinating thing that we don't talk about and i think that that's why you know i had that child come to me when i was doing wit and tears like we're afraid to talk about it john o'donohue actually shared a, a story that has resonated with me and i've i've I will write it into a play one day um, in honor of him, but he spoke about how, as he was a Catholic priest for, I think, over 20 years, he was at a lot of deathbeds, and he said there's no more honorable, there's no higher honor than to be at a bed, at a deathbed. And um, he said, and in his um, career as as a, a priest, he was often at them, and he said, um he there was two actually one he talked about this guy who was an old ben bandera he was uh he was a he lived a rough life and he was just so calm and peaceful john said you know i have to ask you i've been at many bedsides but what is it that has you so calm and so jovial in this moment and he said ah life he said i got a fair shake out of it (laughs) he had lived it you know like john o'donohue saying you know when you're down you're down for 100 million years while you're up you should be living like wild people but he recounted another story where um, he was at the bedside of a woman who was not even 30, I don't think. And she was one of the, you know, Ireland has gypsy, you know, masses in certain areas still. And she was of of a gypsy uh, group and she had children and she was unexpectedly dying and it was quick and she wasn't prepared for it. So he got called to the hospital. He said he walked to the hospital and he said there was this mass of people that were all around her and they're going through the rosary top to bottom. Mm -hmm. He said they would get to the bottom. They would barely take a breath. They would start again. He was like, you couldn't even, it was like, he was like trying to jump, walk into a jump rope kind of, you know, but finally like when he said her eyes were wide with terror and 
all these people were just praying, praying, praying around her. And, and he waited till they got to the end and he jumped in and he said, thank you. Thank you for being here and your prayers and your blessing. And if we could all just maybe st- step outside for one moment and, and have a, have a second together. And he, he brought them out into the hallway and John said, um, you're blessing her with your prayers. Let's think for a moment, though, that while all of us are losing her, that one person, she is losing every single one of you. Yeah. And so he said, I think it would be quite lovely if we could all go in one at a time and speak love to her, speak to her, and tell her the things that you would want to tell her. Tell her the things that matter right Right. now. Speak to her. Calm her with your voice. He said, "If if you need to fall apart, he said, wait till you get beyond the threshold of the door, fall apart. He said, we will scoop you up in prayer and we will be here for you. And he said they did, one after another. They went in. And he said, um, but before that happened, she and he went and said that uh, he 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 went to her and she said, "Am I dying? Am I dying right now?" And she was panicked and he said, "You know, I don't I don't know, but I will let you know if I do." And he went out and you know said that to the people. The people came in one at a time and some came out and fell down and they scooped them up. And at the very end, he went in and he said she had just this peace that radiated from her, just this this calm and this peace. And he sat and, and he spoke with her for a while and she had heard all the love. She had heard all the things she needed to. And then she looked at him and she said, will you open the window? Mm. Will you open the window? And he said, yes. And now is your time ah. right now. And it was like her soul was ready to go out the window. Yeah. He opened the window and she died immediately. Something beautiful about that with the wind, you know, Today, like Charles, uh, the news went out um, about Brian Moore. I don't know if you knew Brian Moore, but he was—he played guitar. He was a musician. Everyone in the music scene kind of yeah. knew the guy. And I woke up this morning and found out he passed away yeah. last night. And I don't know how or why, but Brian and I went to uh, junior high school together. Mm. And I have some memories of him, uh, more younger memories. We didn't stay in touch over the years, but I knew he was around. I was just glad to know he was around, you know, yeah. general comfort of that. <laughs> But now he's gone, and so I got to work this morning, and it was very windy outside, and I just happened to look at the sun, and it was kind of obscured, and the wind was blowing across it. And, you know, I had that feeling that you just described. It was like there's something about the wind, you know, moving on the bardo of death and and just moving into what's next, you know, for him. Right. And uh, it was comforting to know that. Um, I don't know what, what, what ailed him. Yeah. You know, but just to know that it, when it, it, the time is not dark, right. I think that death can be dark. It feels dark uh, on the surface, like uh, to look at a skull, a memento mori. You know, it's like right. that's a scary thing. Right. But I don't, I don't look at that anymore like that. Memento I don't. mori, I love that. Yeah, it's not as not as terrifying. I don't, I don't even know to be honest. I don't have said this on the show, but. I don't even know if I believe in it the way that death is even life, death, one or the other. I kind of see them as one thing. Right. It's become one thing. John said something that kind of shocked me. I remember in the moment when he said it is he said, we think of death as being the ending. And in truth, you know, we don't come back to talk about this experience. So it's all conjecture. Sure. (laughs) Right. Exactly. You can't wait. Faith might be. Exactly. It's conjecture. He said, but... He said, I, I truly believe, he said, think about a baby. And I've just had this experience because I have a newborn. She's five, mo- she'll, she's five months old. Um, you know, they lived inside of your body. Mm. They heard your heart beat from the inside. They heard the music of your heart. They 
felt the blood rushing around you. They were wrapped up. They were tight in. They, they, they were comforted. You know, they had this very specific experience. And then think about the act of birth. How terrifying in, of a change is that? He said, I, he said, birth and death are the same thing. Mm. They're the same thing. Mm. We're going from one being into something we have no experience about. Once you're out, you can't go back in and tell the other baby, "Oh, this is what's happening." So, right. You know. Right. Right. But it's 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 the same thing. And yeah. I, I also I had this opportunity one time to go and study um, in Arezzo at the Commedia dell'arte there. I had written a faculty research grant and went there, and this uh, this this entire the, the school um, was held in the farm of the Medici's, the lemon farm of the Medici's, specifically for their limoncello. Okay. So that's where. Now the what school, is that? The Medici's. Uh, the Medici's of Italy, who were the you know the ones that founded you know um, Da Vinci and okay. ran Italy. So all of the great art, oh, you know, okay. that they, they were the they were the the highest. There, I can't really liken them to any else the the most powerful family i see that okay. just i mean they own they they were they were you know the the they were the owners of of massive movements in art and science and um and uh anyway so we were there and uh and there was a gentleman who had come out he was so dyslexic he couldn't really read but he had won the guggenheim award and he was talking about you know we don't know what happens in the world he said but if you look at what happens internally with a person um and i believe spiritually with a person he said look to nature nature will show you a parallel into mm. it and i think that's what john o'donoghue was doing when he was saying look at birth birth is birth is death or look at a, a caterpillar going into a butterfly. Mm. This worm that knows the ground, the smell of dirt, the feel of rain, um, a leaf. Uh, th- they, that's the experience of life. And then all of a sudden, it, it is compelled to be constricted into this thing where its body is broken down in a not pretty, pretty violent way. Mm-hmm. Broken down and reconstructed into wings. Can you not tell me miracles don't exist if you see a butterfly? I don't know how yeah. you can look at a butterfly and ever say, you, you know, if we pay attention to the world around us, there's wild things. You know, you go from being a worm to being a, a butterfly. You know, I think that there's a lot of parallels in so many philosophies and yeah. religions. Yeah, no, you're right. It, you reminded me of this story Thich Nhat Hanh tells in one of his books. I believe the name of the book. It's either No Death, No Birth, or Just No Death. I can't remember uh-huh. exactly, but... There was a father in, in their in Plum Village. There was a um, a young boy who was ill, and uh, his father, after he passed away, you know, his father was just distraught. You know, he missed his child, and he had so many questions about birth and death. And the way Thich Nhat Hanh, the way he comforted him, just it stuck with me. He took him out to the cherry blossom grove or the plum, the peach blossoms, and he said, "I want to show you your son." And he brought him out there. And he said, you see this orchard out here? And he said, yeah. He said, you know, your son worked in the village to, he would go out and he would raise the money to help plant these trees. And uh, it's hard to even tell the story. I don't know the people, but it just get kind of emotional when yeah. I, I hear it. And I was like, you know, he said, every spring your son is here. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I just love that story. Yeah. Yeah. These things are so important. They're mm-hmm. so important. My, um, I was... Uh, didn't think that after my father passed away that having a ceremony in a church was his style he was um he was a rabble rouser Mm. he was uh i called him a redneck renaissance man he would you know drink whiskey and listen to vivaldi and um, (laughs) 
and uh, he he lived hard and um, and was very funny and articulate and um, but he he was he raised me in the theater, so I I knew I, I had to have the baby first before I could figure out what to do. So I had oh I had my baby, yeah. um, Sophia, and she's just a light of goodness and good humor and wakes up smiling every day and laughing, um, and. After I had her, I said, okay. So I went back to the town um, that we used to live in on North Shore, and I I went to the theater where I did my first play with him, A Streetcar Named Desire. He played Stanley Kowalski. I was a little flower girl. And uh, he and I had been in a show just ourselves later on. And I gathered his friends. I put a, a, a chair on stage. I put a fishing pole, a World War II rifle, a mug that said my favorite people call me Papa. Hmm. Some of the movies that he had done. And I went out to the stage and I poured a glass of whiskey and I shoved the, the pint of whiskey in the side cushions of his chair. <laughs> and everybody who knew him <laughs> laughed because they knew, you know. Yeah. And I put that down and I let everybody, you know, come up and, and tell stories, tell stories of, of his life and, and honor him. And I think that you know well at at the end of that experience actually my my cousin came up to me and he's an officer um up north of louisiana and so you know you think of an officer of the law as being a pretty you know straightforward not you know um mystical kind of person he he came up to me said i want i need to talk to you and i said okay he pulled me um backstage and he said this is going to sound really weird to you he said but i don't know if you know this but the hanneman family he said they they speak to each other with stars Mm. His brother had gone down to Honduras and he owned a bar down there and had been brutally beaten by um, uh, the law enforcement down there. And he had lost him and then he had lost um, his father too, who was also a sheriff. And he said, you know, anytime I need my dad or I need to talk to them, I go outside. He's like, you can't just go out and look up at the sky. He's like, but every single time I have needed them and have looked up, I have seen a shooting star. Mm. And I was afraid for the first couple of months to look at the sky because I was like, I can't look and not see it. Yeah. Um, and uh, and one, that one night, I just felt my father so um, strong in me. And I, and I you know, in... I'm having a, I have a newborn and I also have my parents, all of their belongings in my shed mm-hmm. in the car, you know, my dad's car in the driveway. And so I'm surrounded by this yeah. and, and I just felt my dad so much. And I walked out and I saw his car as I was walking out and I just remember thinking, Papa, and I looked up in a flash of light. Wow. Isn't that something? Very auspicious. Right. Really. Speaking of auspicious, I'm so happy to be here on my birthday. Yeah, that's right. It is your birthday. (laughs) When you said that, I thought that's the first time that's happened. I actually... um, And thank you for taking the time, honestly, on your birthday to come do this. Well, I have a history of really wonderful things happening on my birthday, and you are now part of that history. That is wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And how old are you, may I ask? I'm 44. I'm I'm 44 as well. Yeah. 75. Wow, man. Well, the first... uh, I just I always know something good is going to happen on my birthday. So when you said next week, I was like, let's do that on my birthday because I know that's going to be good. I remember when I was very young, my father, we were, again, uh, had not money, you know, but lots of riches. But my father said to me, you know, for your birthday this year, he said, I've decided to invite the entire town. I'm going to throw a party, but I've decided I'm going to actually invite the entire town. And I said, okay, you know, I knew that wasn't going to happen. He said, in fact, he said, I asked everybody to kind of come out and park their trucks, maybe bring their, <laughs> you know, grills or barbecue pits. And he said, then I was like, you know, we need some music. So I got some bands to decide they were going to march down the road. And then I was like, let's just get some trucks and throw presents to her. And then he was like, and then I was like, well, let's throw presents to everyone, you know? And so I thought, yeah, you know, whatever. And we started driving in. 
in. Well, I didn't know it was Mardi Gras Day. I'd never oh. been to Mardi Gras Day before. So I walked out he as a five-year-old on Mardi Gras Day, which you was my really birthday. You really thought, yeah, yeah, you painted that. And That's so smart. I was just waving like an idiot at everybody like, hey, and of course, everyone's drunk and reveling and, or, and you know, and so they're waving like, back too. And I'm like, there's, pre- I mean, I really thought that. Yeah. That is so. And so my dad was the coolest in so the awesome. world. That is a wonderful That story. was cool. And then I think, what was the next one? Um, uh, it was, it was that. And then, um, oh, um, the Saints, the Saints won the Super Bowl on my birthday. Oh, so really? Per- oh, that was this time I'm of year. I'm personally yeah. uh, responsible for the Saints nation, you know, can thank me. Oh, I, you were born I under a good sign. Happen. Yeah. The next day I went and I had to, um, interview for the PhD program and, uh, and and was thinking no one's going to be there, you know, because of the Super Bowl, but they were. So that was an amazing birthday. And then six years ago today, I had my firstborn child, my my birthday present, Isabella. That's so something. She's uh, she and I. It's our birthday together. So she actually. That's that's incredible. Isn't that fun? It really is. And now I'm here on my birthday. Well, so. I hope this is good. I hope this has been good it's for wonderful. your birthday. Yeah, it's been. Wonderful. I don't. You know, I I would I would almost. I used to say, I don't get to have conversations like this all the time. And I think that's, again, part of why this was born. Yeah. And uh, now I'm just in love with it. Right. I love... Oh, I'm in love with the concept. I absolutely love it. I love the people I've met. I, I've loved everything we talk about. We've talked about. I could honestly just go on and run on. Yeah. You, you know, You know. I, w- I was thinking about all the good people that I've met. And once I found out that this was what you were doing, I was like, oh, man, this is just the perfect thing. Talk about positivity. Talk about... And then find out from people, you know, who in the world is out there. And I just think about, you know, people with the city, people with the university, people. When I moved here, I, I hadn't intended on moving here and I was worried. And then my worries went away and I found there's an army here mm-hmm. of wildly talented people, passionate people, educated people, diverse people, people who are making changes within the city, you know, the schools. Um, it's just it's it's absolutely huge. And and I think you should have a um, I think you should have an annual uh, find the good news party retreat. So funny, are you psychic? Um, because we are going to do that. I do. Yes, me and my wife have been talking about that. Like every year, we want to have some kind of event where we Once bring you know everybody, and they can bring somebody with them. And it should be a family reunion. Yeah, it we've been be talking a huge about that potluck, and and if you need any help with managing that event, that's great. I God, volunteer. that's so funny. We were literally just talking about this like over the last over the holidays, especially. We we're like, you know, that would be good because a lot of these folks don't they don't, know each other. They don't really know each other face to face, or they know of each other, but they don't have interactions. The other thing we're going to start doing. Um, we're calling them mixtapes. Uh-huh. We're going to start uh, every 25 episodes. We're going to do like a poll online and then start asking people to mix and match who they'd like to see in a conversation. Oh, how fun. And yeah. so I'll be in the conversation, but then it will be three other people too. How fun, yeah. yeah. So we'll have some episodes with some past guests who maybe wouldn't normally interact. Sit down at a table. Yeah. yeah. And then um, speaking of that, uh, the fishbowl, I don't know if you've listened to the show or not. But the fishbowl, we're going to use at that. We're going to pass it around the table to kind of stimulate that uh-huh. during that. But now it's your turn to dig in there. I get to dig in. Three questions. Three now, questions. it's been, I'll tell you a little something new. I added something that I didn't write or any of the guests, but it's called the Wordsmith deck. Okay. And it's pretty cool. It's a, got a bunch of writing prompts. But as I started reading through them, I was like, these are good They're questions. Good. Good. So there's some of those in there. Okay. There's some that guests have put in. There's okay. some I've put in. Okay. And let's see what you get. All right. This is fun. All right. 
Where have you been getting distracted in life? Hmm. That's what this whole birth life thing has been teaching me is distraction. Um, really? I think that sometimes when you are, uh, I'm trying to think about how delicately I can put this. When you find yourself tethered to another human being through marriage and it was not the most beneficial thing to your soul uh-huh. and you share a child together, Yes, you are in constant contact with a person who is... Uh, challenges you mm-hmm. um challenges your spiritual nature um and i think that you know i think that sometimes people give a lot of power to people um i don't really know how to 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 speak more on that no it's hard to talk about things like that without yeah, yeah. pause for the siren the, we have a lot of sirens on the show. It's telling me, stop talking. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Because honestly, I relate. Yeah. Um, I've you know, I've been divorced and I have two of my children with uh, from my previous marriage. And look, it didn't. There's a reason why you're not married sometimes. Sure. And so. what a blessing for the child that came from that. You right. know, the children that came from I that. I have lovely children. I love them very much. Um, At the same time, there's a great deal of damage that can come from sure. those interactions. And yeah. so it can be easy. It, it's easy to get distracted by some of that. And But you know what? Death has really helped me with that one. Death yeah. death and birth has helped me with that one because, you know, you don't want to be entered into the fray or into the fights. Like, I well, don't, you said I that don't, earlier I, about getting drawn into petty things. Death and birth will make those things sort of it really does. really you go i'm not doing this it really does yeah yeah so that, no i understand that one. that one too i've dealt with the same thing and i've had similar feelings and yeah. struggles yeah let's see what creature do you most advi- admire for its ability to to, to adapt hmm. um, we just talked about those the butterfly yeah the butterfly and the human yeah i mean humans are pretty adaptable yeah i think it's easy to forget how adaptable we are good lord i mean through atrocities holocausts yeah abusive relationships um imprisonment imprisonment in your mind of your body we yeah one of the things you said earlier and on that subject it made me think of it is that sometimes we can uh pat ourselves on the back for being good at getting through things right and so what a crappy skill to congratulate ourselves i I honestly used to be that person i can get kicked in the face 50 times i was that person for a lot of years i was so proud of myself for being able to get through bad stuff and i was like man this is terrible i don't want this award why am i championing my resilience i should be championing oh good for me i can get through these bad things without breaking down and then you know and it made me and I, I don't know if I stayed in that place too long, but it kind of made me look at other people who weren't that way as, I mean, honestly, like a weaker person. Right. I would go, oh, they're, why are they breaking down? Not I'm not strong. breaking down. Yeah, and I, right. I'm so done with that being that person yeah. and that feeling because I was eventually, again, that realization of, what kind of a word is this? Right. It's not. It's not. It's nothing. And it's it's almost, you know, in being happy about that skill with yourself, it's almost a violence to those towards those who don't oh, sure. have that ability. Because I look around and I love Tennessee Williams. You know, I was um, a Tennessee Williams scholar for a while and worked with the festival in New Orleans. But um, his, you know, one of his plays he talks about, or, or poems too, about being a plight for the understanding of the misfit, a plight for the understanding mm-hmm. of the ostracized, for the for the mad and and that's that's where it all comes down to you know as soon as you look at somebody and they're the people who are uncomfortably 
um, straightforward with their emotions in life and you see them and you're like, oh my God, ratchet it back. Like you shouldn't be, <laughs> please don't cry in aisle seven of Kroger, you right. know, like please, you know, but, or, you know, you, you see them and they're the people that people shrink away from yeah. or shy away from. And, and there again, it's like, of course, the strong and the like-minded, they're comfortable for us to be around, but those people obviously are the ones that need help. And it's often yeah. the bullies that need help. It's That's also true. often the ones that, you know, if you're in a relationship with somebody who is um, unkind, you know, it, it's probably that person who has been stepped on or beaten or bruised or dragged through the mud or, you know, the people who are certifiably insane. Yeah. I think it's a reaction mad, to damage. Those with dementia, you know, yeah. like it's we shy away from these things because they're not comfortable for us. But, man, we could we could walk towards it and embrace it if we could. Yeah, I have a little story in my life, and it's just a small one, but it was not too many years ago. I was at Walmart um, during the middle of the day getting some stuff for the office, and there was this man walking around asking people if he could use their cell phone. And, you know, there's all these stories about people asking for your phone, and they run off with your phone, but he was really, like, visibly upset, and people would... Turn their. I mean, I watched for a while. I mean, I was guilty too, you know. And people would sort of um, go mm, turn their head and walk away. And anyway, he. Uh, I saw him kind of walk off on an aisle. And he was like kind of cussing under his breath and frustrated. And, and he looked like something else was wrong. Like something else was bothering him. And he came up to me and he said, "Can I? Can I use your cell phone? I've lost my phone in the store, and I can't." find it and he started telling me all this stuff about his his daughter he, he moved to town it's a long it was a big long story anyway i said yeah i said you can use my phone i said i'll just stand right here with you while you use it you know if that's all right with you and he's like yeah yeah and he said thank you so much and he so he, he calls his daughter to tell him he's lost the phone he's not going to be able to get a hold of her to meet him wherever they were and he hung up the phone and all this pressure like left him he said i've been walking around here I'm not from here. He said, I've been walking here for 30 minutes. He said, and I just yesterday got through telling somebody why I moved to Southwest Louisiana was because the people, people were, so were nice. nice. Yeah. And he said, and I've been in the store trying to get somebody to let me use their phone because I've left, lost my phone and I just need to hear it ring. Yeah. And he said, and everyone just turns their head like I'm a criminal. Right. And he was like, and he said, I'm sorry. It was just very frustrating. Yeah. He said, you're the only person. I said, well, it's okay. It's okay. But that cracked open a big conversation. And I got to hear this guy's sort of short version of his life story, which was not so great. Mm -hmm. And what had brought him here in these situations in his life. And he, he was crying. In that moment, that guy was hurting so bad. And he, you could tell he'd just been through a lot of stuff. I said, Has any, have you, do you pray? And he said, not really. I don't. I said, do you want to pray right now? And he was like, I guess, yeah. And so we just stood there in Walmart put my hands on his shoulder and I just prayed with the guy. I didn't ask him what he believed. And I came back here. He didn't find his phone. That was beside the point, but he, you could see like an, a calmness. And I, I've thought about it a lot. Like what was it that just calmed him down and got his emotions back in check and gave him a little sense of like, ah, you know? And I think it was just the fact on so many dimensions, he realized that human beings care about human beings. Right. He got to see it for just a second. And then praying, he just for a moment was able to touch like a space that is not like in that that cycle that we that talked about, you know. And I come back and tell my wife, I said, it's just such a strange experience. I said, I want more of that in my life is yeah. what I realized. Yeah. I want more. I want to be more like that guy. 
yeah not him but but in that moment i want to be more myself right yeah. I, I thought I'd, it's not at all the same kind of story but i remember when i was uh working with the tennessee williams norwins literary festival there were many homeless people that were between my office and the rouses that i would go to and um and I remember walking in, and when I first started working there, I gave away so much money. <laughs> just like, <laughs> just one thing after another. And my boss was like, oh, God, you're, you can't sustain this. But anyway, um, I was in there one day, and uh, there was a woman, he, a, a gentleman, sorry. He was in a wheelchair. He was very dirty, and he didn't smell very good. And he was sitting there, and people you could see would just walk around him, like, you know, parting the seas. like. And, and, I, and he looked up at me. I have never seen more beautiful blue eyes in my entire life. His eyes were like blue crystal. They were stunning. And I was walking and I stopped. I mean, it made me turn my head and I turned around. I looked at him and I said, good Lord. I said, you have the most beautiful eyes I have ever seen in my life. And he looked up at me, shocked that I had spoken to him and just, you know, you could see him well up and he was like, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I remember thinking, there's no way that anyone who looked at him could not see that. There's no way that you could not see that beauty. Mm. And we don't we don't tell. We don't speak. Mm. I had an experience just yesterday in the office um, with Jody Taylor. Um, we had a, something that had gone on, and and there was a, a problem that needed to be solved. And and I um, I had responded to it, and he came in. He sat down in my chair, and he said, "I want to tell you something." And I was like, "This is just you know, we all in the office we communicate very well together." And um, but it could tell it was a little different. And he looked at me, and he made eye contact. He was like, "I want to thank you for." standing you know going to bat on this issue he's like i want to thank you and i was like and he just like it was just a moment it was just a breath of time and and i could tell that was it it was a very important moment it couldn't have lasted more than like one one thousand two you know yeah but at the same time it was like it was he said i wanted to acknowledge that yeah and and i just remember in that moment thinking you know that's so noble and that's so important and you know when we I mean, when we're in working relationships or personal relationships or mother-child, father-child relationships, there are going to be things that are difficult. There will be difficult moments. Like in the office, we will, you know, we are going to aggravate each other at some point. We're going to make you decisions that, you know, the other person doesn't agree in it when in, in our marriages, in our, you know, relationships and our friendships. But if we can, if we can acknowledge that and then remember to come back always and just be open and accessible and especially to do the kind of thing that he did which was sit down and say you know thank you for this or to tell the you know the homeless gentleman your eyes are beautiful or my husband is like a champion at that this you know like i'm making him making his lunch and he grabs my shoulder and he looks at me and makes eye contact and he said I love when you make me lunch. Don't ever think that I don't appreciate this act. You know, when yeah. you like, this is just a rote act that, you know, someone could not care about. It's just, you know, people have stopped me in my tracks so many times and I want to be that person. I do too. I want to be that person every day. My child, um, Isabella, the one whose birthday is today, she uh, and I made a tradition when she was about three years old uh, where we would go do something nice for somebody and like sneak away or, you know, like not, (laughs) not get, you know, caught doing something nice or not ask for something, you know, in return. And um, I remember telling her, okay, let's do this all the time. She said, okay. I said, what, we should have a name for this tradition. And she was three. 
she was like, duck pond. I said, perfect. That's perfect. <laughs> I don't know why it's perfect, but it was. It was perfect. It makes no sense, but all the sense in the world. And, you know, we would have that tradition. And I think about just in the tradition of the day is that it, can I stop for three times and tell something to someone good within my own personal sphere? You know, yeah. my my spouse, my child, um, or, you know, the cashier at the at the you know grocery store i remember after katrina hit everybody made eye contact a lot more um people asked each other how are you Mm -hmm. and they actually responded and they actually meant it when they asked the question Mm -hmm. and and then i saw how that kind of you know went away went away shared shared pain everybody's in the same situation yeah Yeah, it's different whenever everybody's suffering and it's terrible to say but wars natural disasters personal loss death um all of these things relationships that are horrific that we go through all of these things they either are the excrement or they are the fertilizer and we, we choose it's one of my favorite stories uh really i don't know if it's a story i don't know what you call it maybe a sermon but it's the mustard seed from that the buddha told the woman to go get a mustard seed from a home. Did you, you know that story? The, I'm actually, as you're saying it, I'm nodding like I know, but I'm thinking of uh, Christ to the mustard seed. So well, it's no. interesting. They both had something about mustard uh-huh. seed, but a woman who had lost her child comes to the Buddha and is like, I'm suffering, I'm suffering, I miss my child, I need master, you know, good help. Lord, tell me, help me, what do I do? And he's like, ah, go to the home, go find the home, go to a, a home where no one has died and get me a mustard seed. And so she's like, I'm going right now. So she's goes amongst the village and the towns and she knocks on the first door and she's like, I need the good Lord has told me to bring a mustard seed. And they're like, Oh, we have a mustard seed. Said, but no one can have died in this home. They're like, Oh no, my 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 husband just died last mm-hmm. week. And she's like, Okay, so she goes house to house, same story. She couldn't find She one. goes back to the Lord's feet and says, Oh Lord, you know, you've healed me. Because you know, he had, it was a lesson to her, and he, he knew what he was doing. I just love it because it's that shared. We when we see other people that way, when we see that they all hurt, they all right. suffer. You know, they all have pains and sorrows, and it makes it just so much different. It does. You know? I, I worked in a uh, at a high school actually in town. I'd never worked in a high school before, and God bless the people that work in high schools and middle schools because they are they should be paid more than NFL football players for sure. <laughs> you know, they right. should be wildly compensated. Um, but um, I worked uh, in the school, uh, the class, the particular class I was dealing with, well, the whole school really, at the time, and it's gotten much better, um, was really kind of rough. The kids were, um, they were just, they were underserved. Um, they came from a rough background, and so there wasn't value in education, there was value in survival. And so survival meant that you had, you know, gangs, you know, friends, people that you, you know, looked cool in front of. And so, you know, teaching this group was very difficult. And I had them in a theater class and, um, man, I I was struggling with this class. They would throw things, they wouldn't listen. It was just, you know, and I tried every avenue to get to them. And one day, finally, I said, we're going to do an exercise. Uh, I said, the difference between dialogue and a monologue, if you watch a a movie or a play, when people talk back and forth, that's dialogue. I said, when one person is talking like I'm doing right now, that's monologue. I said, uh, so um, we're going to talk about monologues today. I want you to write a monologue. They're all like, you know. <laughs> right. And um, I said, no, no, no. I said, wait with me just for a second. I said, if, I said just c- close your eyes for one second, and I want you to think. What, and, you know, anyone who's listening, I would invite them to do the same thing too. What has caused you, what has brought you to your knees 
something has brought you to your knees. What, what was it? What did it sound like? What did it feel like inside of your body? Fear is not just a ethereal thing. It actually can roil your stomach. Grief can cause physical response to it. What, what was it that got you there? What did it smell like? What did it sound like? Um, what was the one instance where something came and it felt so big that you were never going to survive it, you could never get up, that you just had rage or anger or pain or fear or agony and you couldn't stand ever again? I'm like, I want you to think about that. So they, they, you know, they actually did. And then I said, okay, now forget that, erase that board, you know, in your mind. I said, think about something else. Like, what is a moment when you can remember being around your friends surrounded with just hilarity? Like where you could just laugh so hard, milk is coming out of your nose. Like something <laughs> right. that just like, you can barely breathe. You're laughing so much that you just feel just like celebratory or fun or you're, you know, going down the street, you know, on Mardi Gras day and you just, you know, what, what what is it that you know happened that was so funny and um, that a story that you might have told multiple times because it's so hilarious? And then I said, okay, I erase that. And I said, I stood in front of that high school class and I said, I, it's it is not appropriate for me to 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 speak to your spirituality because that's a very private thing, and what I believe doesn't need to be what you believe. So without using any of the language that makes that a prickly kind of situation or a conversation, have you ever felt, I said, close your eyes, have you ever felt grace wash over you? Have you ever felt the majesty of something that is so much bigger than you? The, the, the joy or the peace or the unexplainable beauty, um, have you walked into a church or have you had an experience where you just knew that you are a part of a flow of something that was so big and the good and the bad, it was all okay because it had meaning even if you couldn't understand it. And so after I did that, I had them, you know, I said, okay, now erase that. I was like, pick one of those things that you just, you just found in your head, like either the thing where you're on the floor or the thing where milk's coming out your nose or the thing where, you know, you feel some sort of grace or divinity or something. And I said, just write, you know, 60 seconds is about this long, blah, blah, blah. They wrote me their stories. I took them home. That class of 25 children in Lake Charles in an underserved area, the stories that they told me, I get chills every single time I think about those stories. Because we talk about poverty and we talk about loss and we talk about, you know, children not having the guidance. Like, you know, you talk about your son in ways where you're you're molding, you know, you're, you're leading him to make spiritual choices or mental choices or intellectual choices or artistic choices, not being, you know, overbearing on him, but opening up the, for the river to flow where it goes. These kids, so far, the opposite experience of existence. It's just not even, it's not in the same universe, yeah. you know. And many of them, you know, I read those stories and the next day I came and I looked at those kids and I was like, you know, your stories are amazing. You are carrying inside of you worlds that no one next to you even knows. And maybe your best friend knows some of these stories, but you know, you are brave, you are strong, you are amazingly resilient. You know, yeah, grammar, we could work on that a little bit, but a lot. But, you know, your stories need to be told, and that's what people are doing in songs and theater. And, and you know, check this stuff out and use this as an outlet, you know. And uh, I told him, I said, if you want to come up and perform your monologue, you can do it. If you don't want to, but you want someone else to read it, you can do that and be anonymous. If you want me to do your monologue, perform your monologue, I'll do it. And um, 
one little girl came up and I knew who she was and I knew her backstory. And that child was in the principal's more office more often than she probably ate food. I don't know. She was in there all the time. And uh, she, she pushed it across the table at me and I said, are you going to read this? And she said, no. She said, I want you to. And I said, okay, I could not reach this child for anything, but here she is allowing me to speak her story, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and the monologue was basically something to the effect of, you know, you might want to make fun of me because I'm a freshman and I've already had three boyfriends, but you have no concept of what it is like to have your mother pick some crack dealer over you and for you not to know where you're going to sleep at night, for you to have to go find food at night or go through somebody's trash to get something to eat. So the next time you want to make fun of me because I have a boyfriend, you don't know what it is to need security. Yeah. And uh, and then this other child, you know, got up and he gave me his monologue and I had read his and I thought, well, for sure, this one's not going to read his. And um, yeah, I said, do you want me to read it? And he said, no, I will. I said, okay. And uh, he got up there and he told the story. He was like, you know, I remember when the door got kicked open and um, and uh, and a man came in. It was my mom's boyfriend and he was mad because my uh, my little brother left a toy in the driveway and he picked up this paddle and he started just wailing on him, just beating him, beating him, beating him. And they thrust it into my hand and he said you hit him and he said I didn't want to hit him I love him and everything and he said he, he forced me and I hit him so light you know but he got mad because I didn't hit him hard enough and next thing I know his net his foot is on my neck and my face is in the carpet and my mom's laughing at me you know and yeah. those children got up and performed those monologues you know and that same class fast forward a month or so later um I had the good fortune of directing The Crucible for um, uh, McNeese State University, and uh, and I had those children read The Crucible. Now, who would have thought that these kids would read The Crucible, which is not the most, you know, scintillating reading for <laughs> for yeah. a teenager, but they actually were reading it, and, they're, uh, and I'm talking to them. I'm like, okay, this, this happened historically. This is during the Salem Witch Trials. You had two choices. If somebody didn't like you because you stole their chicken, you know, they thought, or your land, you know, they thought was theirs, or you dated their ex-boyfriend or whatever someone could say you're a witch you have two choices in that moment either you say yes i am a witch and they will let you go free and you'll be you know damned by society or you can say i am not a witch and then they will put you in water until you drown and if you drown that meant you were pure but if you float up then you are a witch you're either going to get hung from a tree or you can lie and and I'm sitting in that classroom of kids who would throw markers across the room and I'm literally overhearing the conversation of one of them talking to two others and the guy was like dude what would you do like what would you do in that situation the other kid was like he he was like you know he was like you you either say you're a witch or and, and then you're free or you don't and you die and the one guy was like dude I'm a witch all day long like I'm a witch I don't want to die <laughs> like I would lie and say yeah. I'm a witch you know and the other guy's like no I'm not doing that he's like because who I am matters more than that and if they you know if I got to die that way then I'm going to go down and die that way I'm going to stand up for myself because I'm not that thing yeah and I'm listening to these kids who could care less about you know education having these amazing conversations and then fast forward again down the down the road when we went into production i brought in the lead actor um who was uh randy uh from um 
like Charles Little Theater, Randy Parton, and uh, this gorgeous actress who um, played Abigail, and I had them do scenes. Well, my kids walked over, shook their hands, made eye contact, listened, leaned forward in their chairs, and then asked if they could do a scene with them. And those wow. kids got up and performed. Then they came out to see the play, and they were, you know, hollering in the seats. And and all of that happened with a group of kids that a lot of, I think, other people would have written off as being um, too uh, difficult in terms of um, their behavior. They would have yeah. just written them off. Well, it's interesting, too, that the, particularly the crucible, you know, what you described, those children, the decisions they're having to make are not easy, right? And so that book or that play, particularly for them, is kind of cutting to the heart of the matter. Difficult choices, and neither one of them are really good, but right. you still have to make them, right. you know, navigating these very, very unreasonable circumstances. Right. You right. Know? And how many times do we all have to do that? Right. You know, and these little kids having to do it every day. Children, That's incredible. Yeah. It is. It is. But that, you know, you could take kids and you could put them into a room with a psychiatrist and be like, okay, help them. Right. But not everybody can have that experience, nor are, is everybody aligned with someone that can speak to them in that way. But if you can continue to put literature in front of them, plays in front of them, poetry in front of them, things that can remind them of something beautiful, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, there's the quote, always keep something beautiful in your mind. You know, there's war-torn areas of this world right now that are being ravaged right this second. And, uh, yeah. And if you keep something beautiful in your mind, um, you can get through and continue on. And again, it just, it makes you more tolerant of people around you when you start to pay attention to that. Yeah. Well, the value of just reading as I'm listening to this whole conversation, I just keep thinking of, I I feel blessed to have taken to reading and and liking it and and wanting more when I was young because, uh, now I still do. And I mean, you can, you can really fill your head with a lot of information that you may not be able to retain necessarily, but it imprints upon you something, right. you know, it, it opened a lot of doors for me and it just created an interest in a lot of things that I'm so glad I was able to visit in detail, you right. know, some of these philosophies or places or just get inside someone's mind. Right. Right. Yeah. And books are going away just like newspapers are going away. Yeah. I hope my children want to read. I really desperately yeah. do. My parents instilled that in me, you know, and poetry and the love for that. Sure. You don't want to get stuck in a world of just reading headlines and short opinions no. and stuff, which I do read articles on the internet and stuff. And I think there's value in that. It's nice to be able to look things up that you're interested in and find an avenue. But I sure. typically, my path usually leads me to a book. If it's something I'm really interested in, I'm going to go find a book or get a recommendation right. for a book because that's that's where I'm going to sink in, you and, know. And I think that some people shy away that from that because of the investment that it requires to sit down and actually read a book, which is why I think some writers like um um oh gosh, am I blanking on his name? David Sedaris, you know, while his his subject matter might be a little raw for some people, he writes in chunks. He writes about, you know, in vignettes, his chapters are pieces of his life that don't follow any kind of chron- chronologic order, and I think that's helpful for people sometimes who can't get into the linear kind of approach of a book but sometimes it could be it could be you know just a couple of sentences or a couple of you know syllables even one that will never leave me and it it leads me in my whole life it's 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 followed me forever is one little piece of a pablo neruda poem Mm. i want to do with you what spring does to the cherry trees. So interesting. I wrote that down because Just, I saw it on your Facebook page. Did like, you? Yeah, it's beautiful. 
it's just like man light it up just light it up yeah light it up time is short well that's interesting how a piece of something will stick with you yeah 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 you know you have one more question look at what they do do. isn't that lovely though i love love this part of the show because that one question generates it's like the engine for so much yeah isn't that beautiful no my um my husband um we started out our relationship like this. Really? We would go, we would talk until three o'clock in the morning with questions. Like we would pull them off. There's one that's online. Um, and I can't remember the person that put it together, but basically the, the gist of it was you cannot go through this series of questions and speak honestly with another human being and get to the end and not have fallen in love with that person. Oh, wow. And, um, and so, but I've done that series of questions with so many different people. I think you can fall in love with a person doesn't necessarily mean it has to be a romantic thing. Um, Right. I think we should fall in love with people every day, you know, like, and that our lives would be beautiful if we did. But yeah, we started out this way. We like that. Always do questions. If you had to write a book, what would you write about? Hmm. We've been, that's, that's a good question for this conversation. Yeah. Um, well, you said you were writing a. You're going to write a my play. My books would be plays. Um, my books would be plays, and some of them are half, half created. Um, but I guess all of them. There's one play called Vice Town. That's um, uh, anyway. It's it's a play, and it it has a predominantly women cast. I think that um, women live in a particularly hard time where they um, they feel that they depreciate as they age. Mm. Um, and uh, I have two daughters who are stunningly beautiful inside and out. Um, one, I'm just getting to know. You know, the other one, um, I know. But I see how women, because of, you know, what's on TV and um, who's popular and famous, they think that their worth lies in the outside, their their physical um, attraction um, or how they feel about themselves physically. And I think that, um, you know, Women, it's John O'Donohue said, there is no way into the universe except through the body of a woman. Mm, wow. Yeah. Something to really think about. And if you think about that, how can you not be a tribe that loves and supports each other? How mm. could you possibly not hold each other up and raise each other up and have reverence? How could you not have reverence for yourself, dignity in yourself and your body and your choices? Um, how could you not, how could you not reach out? You know, and I think that our society has been patriarchal for, you know, ever. Um, and and I think that, you know, we've got our, our first fighter pilot died just recently, you know. How, how in the world are we in 2018 and our first woman fighter fi- fighter pilot just died? Yeah. How is it possible? You know, and and I think that I just want I just want people to have reverence for themselves, and not just not just women, but I think that that's where the dearth is a lot of times. Um, just to have, just to have passion and love and respect, and so the book really would be just about live, breathe, dance, climb a tree go play in the rain, get muddy, <laughs> you know, sit out underneath the stars. It's it's also fleeting. It's also fleeting. You know, we we can't spend our time on the things that deplete us and I have been guilty of that. Um and we all are to a certain extent, but man, I want my children 
I, I look at my, my, my newborn, my five month old, and I look at her all the time and I'm like, enjoy your life. Yeah. Enjoy your life. Yeah. You know, don't worry constantly. Worry gets you nothing, you yeah. know. Um, don't 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 fret about the past and don't worry about the future. You you can't do anything about those. It's be in this moment right mm. now. And when I loop in my head about something that I would tell like an ex husband or something, or if I loop in my head about something that happened on the street, I got cut over, then I'm not in this 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 moment right here. Yeah. And if you're in that moment right there, that's that's navigable with grace usually. Yeah. It's when you're constantly pulled in those other directions that you live a very depleted life and i have seen people get to the end of their lives who have worried so much their entire life or have killed themselves with their jobs and lived in fear and i look at that and i'm just like i want my children to i want them to explode like the cherry blossoms yeah i love that it's true though i mean i I would want the same thing for my children i want it for me i want it for my wife i want it for everybody you know feel the ground underneath your feet take your shoes off you know feel cold on your skin right you know just feel the world yeah you know feel what's out there i mean a paper cut uh, a kiss you know hear a song let it actually sink into you and not just be like something that's just fleeting you know yeah and and it just bounces off of you savor yeah savor savor Savor, right i mean celebrate that's it there are places in the world I, I i guess that you we some of us they're inside of us as well but like real places that you can go if you make them it's kind of like what i was saying about the rose oil it's like you can make those places oh, sure. you know like out of any anything and anywhere you know sometimes it's just uh a tree i mean like you know we have our tree at home has become something that we all quite love i mean we have different bird feeders and bells and flags hanging in the tree and and what's interesting is and there's iron things that we have we hang lanterns on it and i like going out to that tree and i hung some new bells yesterday and as i was hanging the new bells i noticed that the chain from some bells i hung earlier have they're in the tree now and i love it's just you know it's grown it's an inch thicker yeah. But there's just something about it. And I put my hand on it and I, I thought, you know, how many more times will I get to do this? How many more bells will I get to hang in the tree? You know, will I live long enough to see this chain that I'm putting in here now grown into the tree? And, you know, will I have the same thought when I do it again the next time? Will I get to do it again? Those thoughts like that, I've been told by other people going, that's kind of dark. And I'm like, that's, they don't, doesn't feel dark to me. It, yeah. it brings me into that observer mode of my own life and i don't feel old or young at that moment i feel like it's omnidirectional yeah you know a little bit always to remind but those those spaces i think are very important and again it doesn't matter what your what your background is but like for me the adoration chapel 24-hour adoration chapel. my lord that thing is open 24 hours yeah how often is it at four o'clock in the morning when you get the news, you know, about something that right. happens and there's nowhere to go. And there's you know? a space to go. And there's a space. We have go. that in common, That's you and just... I. That is something I've ran to privately for a long time. Uh, because, yeah, you're right. That is a blessing. There's there's always, always there. It's always open and you can always go be in that space. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah. It's huge. I love you just 